Tune in to the Neil Prendeville Show weekdays from 9 a.m. on Cork's Red FM. And preceding our normal paper review in which this story is the main headline anyway, I'm delighted to be joined on uh, the line by Frank Buttermer, solicitor for Ian Bailey. Uh, the uh, Guardian are set to mount their third review of the murder of Sophie Toscan Duplantier and are hoping that DNA advances could finally nail her killer. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, Nick. We joked when we were uh, calling you this morning, you were the most wanted man in Ireland today. That's from a media perspective, of course. Thank you for taking uh, a little bit of time uh, to bring us up to speed here. Uh, This review and uh, this new action, of course, was sought by Ian Bailey about a year ago. Yeah, I'd I'd say not just by Ian Bailey, really, but he certainly did make... uh, There's no doubt that it was also sought and has been sought for some time by the family of the late Madame Toscan de Plantier, And I think there is an abiding public interest in the case as well that the killer should be brought to justice. But yes, as as far as you say it, Ian Bailey (coughs) has been in correspondence, I think, with the Garda Commissioner for some period of time. And uh, at least uh, there has now been um, a decision made to carry out this review. uh, Three other factors, I suppose, uh, coming into play. Uh, The appearance on the Late Late Show of uh, Sophie's son, Pierre-Louis, and uh, the very graphic... uh, I suppose, looking at the case from two different perspectives uh, on uh, on Netflix and uh, by Sky. And uh, I suppose all of these have come to play now. Uh, and um, you and your client, of course, welcoming the uh, upcoming developments. Yeah, I mean, again, uh, there, there, there have been a few factors, as you say recently, Mick. First of all, I think the, I think the 25th anniversary of the death of the late Madame de Plantier was, was, was a, a milestone. Uh, the ongoing uh, distress that is being suffered by her family was manifestly apparent on that late, late appearance. Jim Sheridan uh, did a documentary, I think it was aired about a year ago, having been involved in the you know interest in the case from about 2016, 2015 even onwards, uh, Sky also did uh, a documentary with which I think we didn't have any particular involvement. Uh, and uh, it, it, it seemed to generate interest, not amongst the older segment of the population, which would have been more familiar with the case, but amongst uh, a younger uh, grouping of people who really wouldn't have had as much knowledge as others. So all of this, uh, along with it, just general ongoing interest in the case, has you know, brought the case maybe into 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 focus again, but I, people should remember that there always has been an open Garda file in relation to this case. Um, the fact that uh, there was all this activity in France and so on and so forth has not uh, caused anything to be shut down here. And I'm aware, just from my own direct knowledge, that um, you know there there's ongoing activity in West Cork. To whatever extent there might be in the Garda division down there, I said to somebody during the course of today that nothing would give Ungarda Siakona greater satisfaction professionally than to identify and prosecute a suspect in relation to this case. There's no doubt about that. I mean, it, it has weighed upon the conscience of the guards as, as a force that this case has, you know, taken the turn of events that it has taken over the years. So absolutely, um, it is to be welcomed. I mean, you know that there is continuing interest mm-hmm. in the case and an ongoing commitment to solve the crime. Is that because you feel the guards could have done better 
way back oh, when. I mean, absolutely. Of course, isn't a doubt in the world that the guards could have done not just better, but an awful lot better. That is not a criticism of the present guards. It is a criticism of some elements of Angarda Siakona back along the line. It's without question that there were mistakes made. And, um, you know, one of the greatest mistakes, uh, sadly, was the, the huge commitment of resources at an early stage uh, to, to target one individual, Mr. Ian Bailey. I mean, like the idea that he could have become the sole suspect and even remaining a suspect you know, so quickly into the uh, time following the commission of the crime is one thing that has always convinced me that if, if resources had been spread out, looking at other lines of inquiry or other pursuits, rather than piling in on one person, which is exactly what happened. Uh -huh. I mean, the, the, the investigation was conducted to suit the suspect rather than being open-minded. And that's leaving aside any of the other events that occurred in terms of crime scenes and, you know, stuff that at this stage is probably pretty well established. So, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely justifiable to criticise elements of the inquiry, which, you know, which was conducted back then. Yes, and has, do you think, public perception of Ian Bailey softened over the years? He's continued to protest his innocence. He's continued to uh, engage in dialogue with Angarda Siakana. He's continued uh, to assist wherever assistance was needed. Uh, do you think over the passage of time people are softening in their regard towards him uh, and feeling, you know, even though there's never been anyone charged in this case, he has been, in effect, a prisoner of this case for 26 years now? He has, yeah, yeah, and yes, um, to use that expression, I suppose, yes, softened or changed. I mean, the perception of him um, <laughs> in late 1996, 97, and throughout the early time thereafter was, as you can imagine, almost like the guy who got away with it. But that was a, a construct of him that was created to suit the suspect narrative, as it were, Perhaps he didn't help himself by some of the ways in which he, you know, carried himself or whatever he might have done. And there were other elements that people thought could justify their uh, belief, you know, that he was the correct suspect and so on. Over years, however, when literally scandals emerged and people began to have a better appreciation of, of what was actually done to him, to, to create this aura of suspicion and so on, there was a huge change in attitude towards him and a, and a realisation amongst the, the, the majority of people, if not now the great majority, that, that he has no association with the crime. And that, of course, was vindicated by the independent office of the DPP in any event. But people, you know, way back along the line wouldn't have been aware of the ins and outs of what was going on in the background. These factors then emerged, generally speaking, in terms or in the course of the litigation which he pursued in many ways to establish his innocence in relation to the matter. And these things emerged over years, you know, leading to, I suppose, an ongoing connection with him and the case, but a kind of a, a, an establishment of his innocence in relation to the crime. How has it been for him? I, I heard you talking very eloquently to Neil uh, on this programme a couple of years ago, you know, about machinations so Machiavellian as to beggar belief. Uh, that have been foisted upon Ian Bailey and that you will contend because you've always legally championed his innocence. Has it taken a huge personal toll on him? Oh, without a doubt, Mick. 
I mean, to be wrongly associated with the most heinous crime of murder and to be, you know, regarded as being the murderer in a small community in such a high-profile and grotesque case, it, it really devastated him at the time. It continued to devastate him. It affected all manner of relationships between him and his family, between him and his friends, between him and the public. I mean, he was a shunned individual. He was a pariah in the community, a national pariah. I mean, he couldn't go into places without people turning their backs, clapping when he left. I mean, like, stuff that I know about that would just really actually offend you but then there was always a grouping of people to be fair who knew that he had not done it and who believed in him and he always had support and of course that you know support increased over the period of time when information came into the public domain to cause the the, the change that I, that I that I mention but he is still you know the subject of I suppose, some element of belief in some quarters, and he still experiences difficulties, but I must say, far less so than had been the case. Uh Of course, it's reached the highest echelons of French society. Apparently, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron uh, was talking to Taoiseach Michel Martin about it and saying he should come back uh, to France and uh, and have a new trial. But having been found guilty in in absentia there, uh, and after repeated attempts at uh, extradition being refused by the Irish courts, that's probably the last thing he wants to do, is it? <laughs> you can rest assured of... But I mean, look, let, let, without, let, let's leave that aside. The, the bottom line is that it is manifestly obvious that even the French family have been calling for an Irish police review into the matter. It, it, it follows purely by logic, then, that if that's the case, they themselves want a criminal inquiry to be conducted into into the matter in, in or an ongoing inquiry into the matter in Ireland why would that be the case if they were otherwise satisfied that the verdict that that they that had been achieved against Ian Bailey in France was a satisfactory verdict and of course from the Irish point of view this is merely further confirmation that we of course don't recognize the validity of the process which has happened in France were we to recognise that that was a valid verdict, the Irish police inquiry would naturally be shut down. And of course it isn't, and it never has been, and that's always been something which I have said, which is that the French process was a show trial to achieve an outcome to satisfy, you know, some emotional desires, or understandably so in many ways, but at the end of the day, it was not a just process. And of course, the cold case unit is not without their successes. Uh, This week alone, there was a murder charge preferred in uh, Skibbereen for a murder uh, that happened 41 years ago. This is 26 years ago. So uh, we live in hope that the new technology may bring forth new evidence. Apparently, they've got what's called deep rock technology and that they can go deep into the the, the substrata, I suppose, of the rock or the uh, concrete block which was used in the murder, which the Guardi still have as evidence. And are you hoping new DNA evidence here will, will find the, uh, the killer and bring the killer to justice? I, I, yeah, there's always hope, but I'd say the levels of expectation in that regard would have to be pretty, pretty slim. I mean, right up to, yeah, recently enough, all of that stuff had been uh, looked at. Uh, not this 
matter that you mentioned, by the way, but just the general available modern techniques right up to, I think, probably the about five, six years ago, I would have thought that if there was forensic or scientific evidence available, uh, it would have been available before now. And I think this case, prob- whatever review is conducted, won't depend upon uh, forensic or scientific sort of activity. It probably will be more putting strands of information together, acquiring, maybe, maybe taking a look at different potential narratives as to how scenarios may have evolved. Sadly, again, a lot of that was lost at the time because of the focus on on Mr. Bailey, where a different strategy might have been put into place to identify people back then. So there is no doubt that Angarda Siakona has, has a mammoth task in relation to the review of the enormous file. But regrettably, a lot of the file has its focus on Mr. Bailey, so whether a lot of other stuff has been lost in the, you know, passage of time, we shall see. And of course, those three events I mentioned, that appearance by Sophie's son on The Late Late Show, Jim Sheridan's murder at the cottage, the search for justice for Sophie on Sky, and John Dower's one, the Sophie, a murder in West Cork uh, in 2021, have apparently brought forward new witnesses. And I believe that even though the official announcement of the cold case review is just forthcoming, uh, that the Guardian have been working with these new witnesses in the meantime. Yeah, as I said, ever before this uh, announcement, there's an ongoing investigation in West Cork. I know who's involved in it. They're highly amazed. I know them personally and individually. They're highly committed police officers who are expert in this kind of area of activity. If whatever information they have received, and I know this directly, whatever information they have received, they have always treated it as being potentially of value to the inquiry, no matter how trivial it might be, or ultimately, no matter how unreliable it might be, they have looked into everything which, you know, has come their way in terms of evidence. Again, hopefully, something will come through from this uh, ongoing, maybe, maybe, you know, more resourced, differently resourced, different perspective type uh, inquiry. Okay, and uh, we don't know how long it's going to take. We believe the uh, review team will begin its examination next month. Uh, I believe they'll base themselves at Bantry Garda Station. Uh, and it's expected, I suppose, a key part of their efforts will focus on forensic evidence uh, with new witnesses, uh, evidence gathered at the post-mortem, and, of course, from the technical search of the crime scene. Uh, uh, so everybody wins here except the killer. Uh, if this comes to a successful fruition, uh, the family will have closure. You will eventually close the case. The guards will eventually close the case. And Ian Bailey will eventually close the case uh, should he be found uh, innocent here. Uh, has he ever relayed to you any travel plans or what he would do if this burden was lifted from him? That's <laughs> a long ways into the future, Mick. I mean, he's the subject very unfortunately of an ongoing EAW warrant for his arrest. He remains a prisoner in the Republic of Ireland. He can't travel. If it were the case that uh, a suspect were identified and successfully prosecuted, I've no doubt that it would immediately lead to the lifting of the warrant and then he could travel. I mean, he hasn't been back to his home country since I would think ah, maybe 15, 16 years as people know, he couldn't go to see his mother when she was ill. He could not go to her funeral when she died. All those personal things that are, you know, 
hugely impactful. But if this ever were to happen, then all of those other consequences for him in terms of travel and so on and, you know, ongoing association would come to an end. It would be a massive relief to him. Will he have legal recourse to compensation in that case? <laughs> Mick, I spent a lot of time up in the High Court uh, in 2014, 2015, pursuing a very, very good case, may I say, uh, where I had every reason to be <laughs> hopeful of a different outcome. I- I'll talk to you about that some other time. Okay. Uh, I know you need to get into court, but thank you for giving us this extended bit of time, Frank Buttermer, solicitor for Ian Bailey. And uh, I think everyone uh, in the country wishes the Guardi well in this new, uh, renewed, fresh investigation, the cold case team opening it up again. Uh, and let's hope this time there's closure for all sides. Frank Buttermer, thank you and good morning. Thank you. You're listening to the number one talk show in Cork, The Neil Prenderville Show. It's the best in Cork. On Red FM. 27 minutes past nine now, and let's get to the morning papers. They are, of course, uh, very much engaged and occupied uh, with that story. We just uh, spoke to Frank Potter about Gardy to go back to square one for fresh Sophie probes as they start today. Uh, Gardy said to mount their third review of the murder of Sophie Toscan Duplantier and hope DNA advances could finally nail her killer. The new cold case review uh, of the December 1996 murder in West Cork was ordered following an assessment by Assistant Commissioner John O'Driscoll in one of his last investigations before his retirement on Tuesday. No one's ever been charged over the murder of the 38-year-old French filmmaker in her Skull Holiday home, but Gardy are determined to keep after the killer. Uh, the Echo has the same story, Gardy, to review Toscan Duplanty uh, murder case. Uh, the Gardy serious crime review team will conduct a full review of the case on Garda Shia has confirmed. The Echo also has the story of a house evacuated after hazardous chemicals were found. Owners of a College Road residence had to be evacuated from their home yesterday after hazardous chemicals were found on the premises. The Army Bomb Disposal Team were deployed to investigate hazardous material at the house, which was cordoned off from 1pm. The Echo also has a man trying to strangle his partner with a T-shirt. Liam Halen reporting that a man tried to strangle his partner with her own T-shirt, punched and kicked her, jabbed a large kitchen knife into her side and told her he would dig a hole to put her in and that she would never see her family again, a court has heard. The victim said she believed that 37-year-old Gavin McCarthy was going to kill her in the apartment they shared in Blackrock and Cork. In the course of a catalogue of evidence, he spat into her face, tore hair from her head and punched her in the nose, causing it to bleed, says the Echo. He has now been jailed for four years for assault causing harm to her, threatening to kill her and false imprisonment. Check out that Liam Helen story in today's Echo. The Examiner front page has COVID threats loom over holiday plans. You've uh, been battened down and locked down for two and a half years. You finally cobbled the money together to go on a family holiday. And now COVID is hitting uh, many of the air crews. Air Lingus have been forced to cancel flights due to COVID among staff. Now, it doesn't appear to be holiday flights just yet. Uh, it's uh, flights to Heathrow and Brussels and that kind of thing. But uh, COVID is threatening to throw the travel plans of holidaymakers into disarray this summer as cases surge across Europe, leaving airlines with no option but to cancel flights. Uh, Maybe uh, flight cancellation insurance is a good addition to your holiday package if you're booking. Aer Lingus has warned of further uh, disruption today in Dublin Airport after it was forced to cancel a further 12 flights to European destinations due to COVID-19 cases among staff members. The virus and strikes 
are, uh, were also to blame for the airline cancelling 13 flights last weekend. It comes as HSE Chief Clinical Officer Dr. Cullum Henry confirmed the country is in the midst of a new wave of the virus. Aer Lingus said the routes hit yesterday were between Dublin and Amsterdam, Edinburgh, Frankfurt, Geneva, Lyon and Munich uh, and it caused some disruption. Dr. Henry said Ireland is in the midst of a new wave of the virus, but that this time it's been driven by sub-variants of Omicron. Uh, court finds 19 guilty over Paris attacks, says the Irish Times today. If you remember that Bataclan, terrible terrorist incident, uh, 19 of 20 co-accused were found guilty as charged last night in the culmination of a 10-month trial for the most murderous Islamist attack in French History: The attacks in Paris and Saint-Denis on the night of uh, Friday, November 13th, 2015, killed 130 people and left more than 500 injured. Saleh Abdeslam, the only survivor of the 10-member commando squad that detonated suicide vests, mowed, mowed down café goers and wreaked terror in a concert hall over several hours, was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole by the Special High Criminal Court comprising five judges, and the judges follow the prosecutor's recommendations in prescribing life without parole, an extremely rare sentence, by the way, from Abdeslam uh, for him. Uh, his lawyers earlier described uh, the punishment as a slow death sentence. What more or less does he deserve? Or Kelly gets 30 years for sex abuse. The deplorable R&B star lured young fans. Disgraced R&B star R. Kelly. Remember his big song, I Believe I Can Fly? Well, he's been sentenced to 30 years in prison. He was convicted last year of federal racketeering and sex trafficking, stemming from his efforts over decades to use his fame to ensnare victims he sexually abused. Uh, the Mirror today has uh, this nation is the second highest for food and booze and uh, the true extent of rip-off Ireland has been laid bare now as we continue to try to do every day on this programme. It's emerging Irish shoppers are paying the second highest prices for food and booze in the Eurozone. Groceries in supermarkets here are almost a fifth more than the average being paid in the other 19 countries that use the currency, while alcohol is twice the average. The Mail front page, her parents are now skipping dinners. This has been uh, uh, a UK paper preserve up to now. Uh, there's lots of stuff on YouTube about uh, parenting and people going uh, hungry to keep their kids fed or people huddling around in cold houses uh, as the winter left us and the summer appeared across in the UK. And now it's here as well, apparently. Parents are now skipping dinners. As a TD says, people are now treating food as a discretionary item. It's official. Prices here are among the highest in Europe, reporting the CSO. Families struggling uh, to put food on the table as a new study reveals grocery prices here among the highest in Europe. Check it out on the mail front page. A CSO study revealed that last year food prices here were 17% above the EU27 average, making it the second most expensive uh, in the zone. St. Vincent de Paul received 80,000 requests for help since the start of this year. That's also up 20% uh, on last year with the majority of these linked to food poverty. St. Vincent de Paul estimates one in 10 people suffer from food poverty in Ireland and that's before before inflation started driving prices up. It's a huge issue uh, and it was prior to this anyway. Uh, Tricia Keelty, head of the social justice at the charity, told the newspaper, uh, the mail. Tinder swindlers are stealing Irish hearts and Irish wallets. Romance fraud has led to criminals conning over 800,000 euro 
from people using dating sites in the first five months of this year. And Gardaí are warning those looking for love to be cautious about giving too many details to suitors who come across as being the ideal person. You're meeting them online, for God's sake. The recent release of the popular Netflix documentary The Tinder Swindler has shed new light on the lengths con artists will go to when luring an individual into a false sense of romance. So it's the rise of romance fraud and victim of romance fraud believe they've met their perfect match online, but in fact they're being scammed by a person using a fake profile to build the relationship. Scammers are known to slowly gain the victim's trust with a view to eventually asking them for money on foot of some sob story, uh, I would think. And uh, Piper's Wagon, and I hope to speak again to Brendan Piper later in the programme today. Piper's Wagon stays in Kinsale. Some conditions attached, I think. The owner of a Cork Funfair fought back tears following news that his famous showman's wagon will remain in in Kinsale despite previous council requests for it to be moved. Brendan Piper, the man behind one of Ireland's last remaining traditional businesses of its kind, Piper's Funfair in Kinsale, was devastated by the prospect of having to move his showman's wagon from its spot in Short Quay. The landmark vehicle has been sitting there for almost a century. At the same time, he and father Bill, he and his father Bill had postponed the Funfair's opening due to a proposed increase in charges for the use of the traditional Funfair site which is a car park in the town normally. But following lengthy discussions with Cork County Council, uh, Brendan said they'll now be able to locate the showman's wagon in the car park where the fun fair is held. So it's not going back to Short Quay. He's also come to an agreement with the council on charges for the use of the fun fair site. It's a tradition. It's well-loved in Kinsale. Maybe not 100% of people agree with it, uh, but it was the people of Kinsale who made this happen. He said, all I am is a small cog in the wheel. Glad to have played a little part in that as well. Now then, let's go to our phone lines. Quick commercial break. First, uh, coming up on 24 minutes to 10. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 0818-104-106. Red FM. And a very good morning from the Neil Prenderville Show. The government has published a zero-tolerance strategy to tackle domestic, sexual and gender-based violence. And the Taoiseach joined the Minister for Justice and Minister for Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth, that's some portfolio, to uh, publish the most ambitious plan to date requiring the whole of government and community effort to create an Ireland where gender-based violence is not create is not. Uh, tolerated in any way. Uh, so the domestic abuse plan is finally on the agenda decades later. And family law solicitor Vicky Buckley joins us on line two. Good morning, Vicky. Morning, how are you going? Very good. This is a, a very important collaborative approach. Can you explain? Yes. So um, I think it's it's probably a long time in, in the coming for sure. And what it is, it's it's a little bit different um, in that it's it's kind of stood back and thought, right, you know, who needs to be in this? What do we need to make it work? And they really have um, come out with legislation that, you know, uses every aspect of the whole system, um, from the guards to the DPP to practitioners in court. Um, I think they're going to expand it out into education, to, to you know, to younger kids. Um, so across the board, they're highlighting, you know, the real need for a zero-tolerance approach to domestic violence. What constitutes domestic abuse? Okay, so I suppose the, the traditional um, the traditional element of domestic abuse would be physical abuse. Um, however, I think that, you know, by reason, I think, of a lot of elements of society coming together recently, um, it's not just physical abuse now. Um, it, it, it involves emotional abuse. It involves financial abuse. A lot of that comes under the whole... 
um, title of coercive control. So it's it's anything that puts a another person in fear by reason of what you say, how you do things, how you threaten to do things, how you might undermine somebody. And then, of course, obviously, there'd be the, the physical aspect of the, the actual physical assault as well. And I, I suppose it's love, what was love, breaking down. Uh, insecurities coming into play, coercive control or power empowerment over somebody coming into play. Um, so what we're going to see here is, uh, first of all, the public awareness campaigns, which I think will probably challenge yep. any existing myths and biases around this topic. Um, well, I haven't seen anything as to what they're going to be, um, but I, I know that they had some out during COVID because I, I was spoken ill before with regards to the increase in domestic violence during COVID. Um, and there was a government campaign came out and it was um, it was quite stark, really. Um, but, you know, it really did resonate as to the, the realities of it was, you know. Um, so I think the public awareness campaign, obviously that would be media-driven. Um, but also I think they're going into schools. So they're going to start bringing awareness, you know, to secondary school kids um, about what is the different types of domestic violence. And also what's really important in this one, and I know the DPP's office is working similarly, um, with them is that victims of domestic violence and you know child victims where they they may have grown up in or growing up um, in you, you know a family or a household where this is prevalent all the time um, and just a you know a little bit of teaching that this this is wrong this is wrong this is not acceptable. Okay, they're so throwing, throwing nice money at it now too. Three hundred and sixty-three million uh, is quoted to be the uh, the cost of the strategy, which is going to be built yeah. on four pillars: protection first, then prevention, prosecution, and policy coordination. There's going to be a hundred and forty-four detailed actions to be implemented this year. Who will be at the yeah. coalface of this? Uh, is it our social workers who come face to face first with uh, any alleged domestic abuse? So I yeah, and like well, we were constantly encouraging people to. There is there is wonderful, absolutely wonderful support groups. Um, I, I suppose they're primarily women's refuge centres, but I mean that's not to say there isn't, you know, an ever increasing male uh, domestic violence situation as well. You know, um, so they would yeah they would be the first point to call. And I think from what I've read so far, I think they want to increase the number of refuges available um, because. They made an example, say to say that, you know, say somebody is experiencing domestic violence and they need to go. But they think, well, I can't go because A, I have nowhere to go that's safe in any event. Um, and B, if I do, I'm taking the kids out of school and I'm taking them out of their familiar environment and that's not fair on them. And, you know, I'll, I'll just I'll just deal with it. You know what I mean? So they, they want to stop that. They want to, to push it out that there is a safe place to go. Um, and I think that's that's the first that's the first point of it. I suppose doctors, guards, um, I suppose solicitors as well, you know what I mean, would be generally the first point of call that people would go to. Okay, maybe not your area, but I had a very heartfelt letter from a dad uh, who was not allowed to see his children and uh, the children were being used as a weapon against him uh, in a breakup situation, even though he was paying maintenance and doing uh, everything he should do financially to support uh, his children. Is that a form of domestic abuse, using children as a weapon against a partner? Well, personally, I think it's unacceptable. You know what I mean? Because it's, it's like the relationship has broken down as between two adults and then the kids are going to be used as pawns and they're going to be pulled and dragged. Um, and that, that happens, unfortunately, all too often. Um, look, I, it, it, I think it is a form of control. It, it is a form of control. 
um, because it, it, isn't it? it's one it's one parent that's that's using their their powerful position as against the other. And um, there was also from the department from from this minister again recently. Um, she was looking for submissions uh, with regards to parental alienation, and I think that that this kind of situation that you've just spoken about more flows into that type of of it, where one person would constantly berate the other parent, you know, behind their backs. Um, yeah, with premeditation, so there is motive there. Motive is a heart, I suppose. Um, motive is a heart. Um, it, I mean, like I suppose relationships are complicated at this time, yeah. But when there's a breakdown, there's a million and one reasons for it. There could be lingering hurt, there could be new hurt, there could be financial struggles, you know, there could be ongoing personal issues. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to bandy about the, the, you know, the whole situation of, of mental health, but people have been through a very, very tough time in the past few years, you know. So stresses that ordinarily could have been worked out, they're, they're just not, people just don't have, you know, the ability to deal with that anymore. And I think maybe that's why the government has, um, you know, and all of the agencies have come together and said, listen, this, the level of domestic violence is, 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 you know, gone out of control. And, I mean, to hear what people are going through, the actual situations that people are living in and are surviving in, um, they really would, they really would take your breath away. So this is a very serious, this is a very serious problem. But the fact that there is this collaborative approach now between everybody um really is it's you know it's very encouraging and uh, the guards have been outstanding with the way they're they're um uh responding nowadays to the domestic violence situation it okay. really is it's, it's up to game yeah yeah we have a question that's been lingering around uh, the production office i posed it on air but we didn't get a kind of a satisfactory response maybe you can help here it's a question about how long does a divorced dad have to pay for uh, the maintenance of the children is it up to 18 or does it go on to college years or what um, so, strictly speaking, under the legislation, it's 18 when a child is 18, but, or unless, um, if the child is in full-time education, i.e. they remain a dependent, it sounds very clinical because it's a child, but um, if it's 23 when they're in full-time education. So, like, I would have done my leaving search, you know, in, way back at 16, 17, whereas now I think a lot of the kids are more 19 that way. So it would be 23, but it's 23 in, under the legislation. Um, for a dependent child. Okay. Um, uh, we, we, if you ho- hold it, just hold a second, Vicky. We have June on the line, a volunteer with Yana. Uh, you are not alone, which is a domestic violence service. Uh, hi, June. Hi, how are you? Good. You reckon we need to see how this new legislation plays out in court? Uh, well, look, it's, it's, it's only after being announced and um, it'll be interesting to see how the whole thing is rolled out. But, you know, from our perspective, we're, we're delighted with it, you know. I mean, when you look at the, um, what's, what the content of it, like, I suppose, you know, it's, it's huge, you know. We've, we've never seen this kind of um, recognition this kind by the government, of, I suppose, that this is yeah, a problem that needs to yeah. be tackled. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's something that a lot of organizations like ourselves have um, campaigned for, for for many years. So, you know, I mean, for us, this is this is a good news day, you know. OK, as, as we have a sex offenders register, should we have a domestic violence register? Well, I think we should. You know, that that's my own personal feeling on it. I, I think that we should. I think that if someone has... Um, orders against them and 
you know, that, that we need to be able, or the guards need to be able to have a register that they can look at, you know, because there's times when I've gone into court and without uh, a client's knowledge, without our knowledge, you know, you go in and you might find out that they could have nearly 200 convictions and previous convictions and a lot of them for assault, you know, so I think that it would be handy in that regard. Okay, finally, I've got an email here. I'm going to read it and maybe get both of your interpretations on it. A genuine email. I must keep the the anonymity, though. Uh, Hi, Mick. I'm a woman and have seen a family member lose three children uh, due to his ex-wife, who has emotionally abused and manipulated her children to hate their dad and every single member of his family. These children and every child subjected to parental alienation do not even realize what's being done to them. They teach this in schools in America and it should also be done here. Too many parents have lied to their children in order to make them fear the other parent and subsequently make that child reject a parent they once loved. Education on this subject is key. The child may then realize something's not right and it will make them question rather than blindly following following the parent they trust who is lying to them. Uh, It truly is a disgusting act to know a parent can inflict this on their child. Often these parents believe that they are in fact the good parent when in reality they're not. Please keep highlighting the topic. There may be a teenager or young adult listening that will hear the subject and start to connect the dots of what uh, was done to them growing up and find their way back uh, to will find their way back to a much loved mother or father. Children of parental alienation often live with massive guilt for rejecting their parent and hearing something about this on the radio might let them know that their rejection of their loved one was not their fault. In our family situation, this member has had his name slandered all over our hometown and on social media for being an abusive man to his ex-wife and his children. Uh, These women are masters at playing the victim. Unfortunately, the real victims are the poor children who are growing up uh, with her. Please read out my email. Please don't mention my name. I'll never stop advocating for the children and the parents who have been subject to parental alienation. Do you come across this a lot, Vicky? Um, yeah, we do. Um, and and the courts, um, and I know, and I, I would have spoken to June about lots of these kind of things over the over the months. Yeah, mm. um, the courts are very aware of parental alienation now. Um, but you know what? I, like, and as a practitioner, and I think June would agree that this would be my approach to a lot of these. These are adults who are using, like, they, there's a name for it now, parental alienation, right? But these are adults whose relationship has broken down for whatever reason that is. Don't drag the and children into it. Would you agree, it's June? just not acceptable to drag the children into it like that. Yeah, quick one for um, June. Uh, June, would you agree? Yeah, like, I mean, what the, the, the letter said it there, that the issue here is education. Parental alienation is the new buzzword that we're hearing a lot of. However, we need experts to be able to go in and to um, actually be able to deal with those kind of situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's down to having the right people with the right expertise um, in there. Because the last thing you want are children being in a worse situation when you have someone going in who's supposed to be sorting out the situation, if you know what I mean. And we need judges to have expertise in those areas as well. Well, hopefully Um, the new zero-tolerance strategy to tackle domestic, sexual and uh, gender-based violence will will go a long way to uh, your ambitions here. Family Law Solicitor Vicky Buckley, thank you very much. And June, from You Are Not Alone, I almost called you Yana, because I know a girl called Yana. Uh, well, <laughs> we are Yana. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a million. Thank you both. Good morning. Bye. Cheers. Bye.
Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. We have acres of checks coming through to the programme each and every day. I'm going to try and address some of them now. First of all, though, in the next two hours, we're going to play our final Elton John song. This will be Elton singing an Elton John song. Not one of his songs sung by somebody else, OK? So closer, to, I suppose, to uh, uh, the end of the programme, we are going to play uh, an Elton John song. And these are the final set of free tickets that we're going to give away. Uh, so getting your summer sorted, Elton John playing uh, Parky Kiev tomorrow night. There are still uh, some production release tickets available if you wish to go along, but if you want to go for free, keep listening to the Neil Prenderville Show and we'll play that Elton John song between now and 12 midday. We spoke about the army yesterday. Good morning, Mick. Weren't the army brought in to help with COVID vaccinations in City Hall? Yes, we did mention that yesterday. Um, the Defence Forces, Defence Against What? Uh, we might as well use them for something, says another texter. Uh, somebody else came in, said uh, they're using the army to save money in Dublin Airport taxpayers funding it again uh, just cheap labour, DAA needs to spread around the flights and there will be no issues, we have enough airports in the country, using the army to save money in Dublin airport and taxpayers uh, are funding it again, says another texter, the most sensible argument actually that I've heard uh, regarding the DAA and Dublin airport debacle uh, notwithstanding now it's being compounded by the cancellation of Aer Lingus flights, is that Baldonnell airport should become Dublin South Airport and the airport as it stands should be Dublin North. Uh, that would take all of the necessity to travel up the M50 for everyone south of Dublin uh, and coming down as well, I suppose. It would, uh, uh, wouldn't would alleviate so much of the northern traffic coming down, but they'd use the northern airport. Uh, but if uh, Baldonnell could be used as the uh, second international airport of Dublin, I think that would make uh, a hell of a lot of sense. Anyway, that's just me. Cost of living subject. Hi, Mick. It's costing me 20 euros a day on petrol to get to work. I'm 21. I'm renting a house at crazy prices. I have a good job with okay money, but it's still not enough to survive. And it definitely had an effect on my mental health. I'm constantly stressing over it. Another uh, texture yesterday says, regarding fuel, be careful when filling up your car. I was getting diesel on Monday. The sign said 2.14. But when filling, it was 2.16. It's only two cent, but that's false advertising and very frustrating. We're being robbed, says Susan. It was 90 cent today for a sausage in from oil. I won't be back to that particular outlet, says another texture that was yesterday. Hi Mick, hope you're well. I think what's happening here is that our government could reduce fuel and energy prices at the stroke of a pen, but are refusing to do so. In my opinion, they're accumulating all the extra taxes for October and they uh, then have a huge giveaway budget to try and claw back support from Sinn Féin. This is playing politics while people are going without food and heat. Uh, Mick, that man is so correct regarding the unions. They talk a lot but never take action. They cower to governments over and over again. He's also correct about the French. When the unions there act, they really act. Uh, maybe you might request some of the union leaders to come on your show to comment. Right, back to work, says Sean. I'd be happy to talk to any union leaders if they uh, wanted to come on. And one final one. Hi, Mick. If the government had any sense of the squeezed middle, it would be closing the immigration bridge from Europe and beyond and deporting illegals without more delay. You can contact the programme on 0818 or by text on 0868 But news at 10 is next. Get it off your chest. Text the Neil Brinderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. Now, before the news, we were talking about the government publishing a zero-tolerance strategy to tackle domestic, sexual and gender-based violence. It has four pillars. Prevention, protection, prosecution 
and policy coordination. Uh, Taoiseach uh, joined the Minister of Justice and Minister for Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth, uh, Helen McEntee, to publish the most ambitious plan to date requiring whole of government and community effort to create an Ireland where gender-based violence is not tolerated. And uh, just to uh, continue on the topic, we have Ruth Lehan, who is the project coordinator uh, for Yana. You are not alone. Uh, she was involved in the creation of this plan and would have spoken with Safe Ireland feeding information into the government. Has this been a successful coordination of effort uh, to bring this uh, publishing uh, of the Zero Tolerance Strategy to bear, Ruth? Hi, just firstly, thanks very much for having me on. Um, and I suppose what we would definitely be saying is that we, we are delighted with the with the implementation plan for, for this national strategy. I suppose all of the domestic violence services across um, Ireland would have been feeding in their recommendations to Safe Ireland and it was Safe Ireland who would have worked closely with the with the government agencies to to state exactly what we what we wanted. Um, and we have that in this plan. So you know an increase in our funding, a doubling of the number of refuge spaces. Now that is across that's across Ireland, but Cork, North Cork, West Cork and Cork City have been prioritised as areas that need refuge spaces um, within the next two years rather than just being part of the five-year plan as it is. So I suppose it's been it's been an uphill struggle to start with, but Helen McEntee's office has has she's very much invested in this program, and and we felt that from her, and I think we do have faith that she she's invested in getting this rolled out and and invested in making sure that this is part of you know a zero tolerance plan because it's it's great that we have refuge spaces it's great that they're going to double those refuge spaces but a refuge is the last resort and what we need is for for women and children across Ireland to know that they can seek help and assistance from the guards from courts from support agencies like ourselves um, and have the understanding from all agencies about what domestic violence is and what that looks like and I think at the moment that that can be quite unclear so I suppose we're delighted that um, in this program it is going to also include training for um, teachers you know there's going to be work done within schools around you know very gently discussing with children about consent about healthy relationships unhealthy relationships and all of that is a really positive thing from from where we're standing okay uh, it's, it's going to be very difficult for me to ask this question without offending somebody i'm not being sexist in any way but do you think you got a, a better listening ear from a female minister for justice uh, and of course covering all of the other uh, remits that she does equality disability integration and youth mm. do you think you got a better listening ear from a female minister for justice than you would have uh, from a male minister for justice, is there a bit of a better understanding there? Um, and I, I thought that it's a really difficult question to to answer. I think um, she came along at the right time for us. You know, the pandemic had already highlighted domestic abuse; it had brought it into people's homes on the radio, in the media. So it was already a talking point. Um, what I do think is all women. All women have a carry with them a fear 
that something could happen wherever they go, whether that's walking down the street, being out at night, having a drink in a pub, you know, coming home from work, going for a run. These are things that that women think about. They have to think about their safety daily um, from morning until night. And, and I think that's really been highlighted this year as well. You know, it's always been something that's said about it needs to be safe for women to go out at night. But actually, we know with Ashling Murphy's murder, she was she was murdered during the day. And that's really highlighted that women's safety has to be a priority. So what I do think um, Helen McEntee probably has, like the same as with all women, is that understanding that we have to protect ourselves every minute of the day and and I can't speak for men but I don't know if that's if that's something that that they would be thinking about throughout the day themselves okay. so I think that that in itself probably did lend itself to to creating this implementation plan okay as somebody who's at the cold face of this topic Ruth uh, as a project mm-hmm. coordinator for 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 Yana how big is the mm-hmm. domestic violence problem here because I would imagine that there is uh, quite a high percentage <clears throat> of domestic violence that's smoothed over, if you if you like. That's concealed, uh, that people wouldn't mm. know is going on. That stays behind closed doors, so that you can yeah. portray, you know, happy families in society. Yeah, absolutely, and and I and I would agree with that. Um, you know, the domestic violence problem that we have in Ireland, it's it's huge. Every one of your listeners will either have experienced an abusive relationship or will know somebody that has experienced an abusive relationship. Um, so there isn't, this touches everybody, men, women, especially children. And I think it can be really hard to um, identify and to see, you know, from the outside looking in what domestic abuse can look like. We, we hear it a lot that, you know, if there's no physical abuse in a relationship, quite often women who use our service don't think it comes in under the category of domestic abuse or that, you know, maybe they, maybe they're being paranoid. Maybe it's not as bad as they think it is. Um, so it's very difficult then for them to explain to family and friends exactly what they're going through. And I think that's why this, this the implementation of training for all frontline services, you know, or taking that training into schools, that's really going to start um, this from the ground up because we have to have a society where where it's okay for women and men to be able to say to a friend, a family member, the guards, a, a judge, this is what I'm experiencing and for every single one of those people to instantly understand that is domestic abuse and that's what domestic abuse looks like even if there's no physical abuse because I do agree um, it is it's it's still very hidden in Ireland I have seen that changing over the last couple of years and I think that is partly to do with the pandemic and, and how much that highlighted the the fear and risk that people were put at by having to stay at home um, but we're we're a long way away from having having you know the end results which hopefully this plan will be the start of. Okay, is the uh, is the most difficult step, I suppose, the decision to take that first step for help and contacting mm-hmm. uh, an organisation like Yana or perhaps the uh, the Rape Crisis Helpline or something, Samaritans yeah. even? Absolutely, yes, yeah. And quite often we would be the first 
um, organisation that a woman has spoken to um, because it, it's so difficult for them to, to even, you know, cross the threshold of our door and then to explain to somebody, this is what I'm experiencing. Most of the women doubt themselves. They, you know, they've been told for years that they're paranoid, they're crazy, they're too sensitive. So if you hear that day in, day out, if somebody is questioning your every move, if somebody's questioning where you've been, what you've been doing, you'll start to question yourself. So quite often we do get women um, who will contact us and say, I don't know if this is domestic abuse, but there is something wrong in my relationship. And we will say, just come in and speak to us. You know, and I think there's there's no onus from, from us as an organisation and also from the other services um, within Cork that if you if you come and speak to us, it doesn't mean you have to go and see the guards. It doesn't mean that you have to leave your relationship. It just means you're taking that first step. And I think the first time somebody explains to another person what they're going through, it's a bit of a breakthrough. Yeah, so the weight really is lifted really, isn't then. it? That's it, yes. And what we notice is once that person is believed, and you see, we just we only deal with women. There is a service in, in Cork City that also deal with, with men. But once once that um once you've been believed, it actually encourages people then to be able to speak a little bit more clearly, to tell their family and friends what exactly they're going through. And it's so important for that person to have a, a support network around them. Um, because it's a, it is a difficult road, and oh, we know that. Um, what, what percentage do you think that woman pays? So, sorry, Ruth. What, what what percentage do you think uh, of men versus women are availing of these services? Is it predominantly women? So, from our perspective, because it's only women that we deal with, we would only see um, the the side where it, it is women who are victims of domestic abuse. But I think, and what this, what the new um, strategy from the government does acknowledge is that domestic violence, it's it is something that women go through more so than men. It's gender based violence, and it's aimed towards women. That doesn't mean that men don't experience it. But I suppose. The percentage of men who do, it's it's a it's much it's much more reduced than the than the percentage of women who go through any kind of domestic abuse, and that's why you will always find there's more services for women because that's what's needed. You know, the ideal is that we'd be out of a job and you don't need services for women or men who are who are going through this. But in order to get that, it is about education and it is about training and it is about everybody having an understanding about what that what that abuse looks like, especially when there's no physical abuse. Because I think that's something that a lot of women and men will question themselves on. If there's no physical abuse, then it's I'm not I shouldn't be going to see an agency like Yana. You know, it's not bad enough. It's just something that I need to deal with. And that's not true. And there's so many options for people out there that I would I would encourage anybody, male or female, who has who has an idea that something isn't right, just make that first phone call and go and speak mm-hmm. to somebody. Because I, I commend you. not the right organisation. I commend we're, you for wishing yourself right out of a job, Ruth. I, 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 I commend yeah. <laughs> you. For, that's that's for the greater societal good. H- how much yes. of the problems and you know that are that are born around domestic violence do you think uh, are carried into a relationship from maybe from maybe a perhaps not perfect upbringing? Uh, in, you know, mm-hmm. in, in 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 that child's household, that child who's now yeah. an adult and is kind of is is paying that yeah. emotional abuse forward. 
I'd absolutely agree with that. Um, you know, I don't think I don't think a perpetrator is just becomes a perpetrator one day. You know, I think even in the pandemic, where, where there was a lot of talk around um, domestic violence has escalated. These people, these perpetrators, were behaving in this way anyway. So the pandemic didn't create any perpetrators because it, it doesn't work like that. Um, Quite often what we will see is that perpetrators have come from, you know, a difficult background. There's quite often been domestic or sexual abuse in their family. It might not have necessarily been aimed directly at them, but they've witnessed it. They might have experienced it. Um, and that cycle, that keeps that keeps going round. So we even know from some of our clients where, where some of, you know, their children become adults they start repeating what they've seen. Um, and it's you, that's why we can't break the cycle just as we are. In order to do that, you do have to start putting, start putting that information out in a safe, gentle way to children. Start getting their parents involved. Um, it's the only way that we can start building you know, a society where abuse doesn't exist from the ground up. Because at the moment, we're firefighting. And that we're firefighting because we're trying to deal with incidents after the matter. But we're firefighting because the more people know about domestic abuse and, and what, it, what it is, the more clients we're getting through the door as well. Which is a good thing, because it's better for them to be speaking to somebody rather than to be going through this on their own. But I do, you know, personally, I believe it is, it's something where, um, they, you know, a lot of perpetrators have, have witnessed or been victims of domestic abuse. And then that's how, that's the only way they know how to respond to their partners because they've spent a lifetime um, watching that. So yeah. they don't have any other coping mechanisms or any other way that they've learned to be able to deal with, with other people. Yeah, I'm reminded of a very, very poignant and powerful poem. Uh, and I wouldn't be a poetry fan per se, but do you remember Pat's hat, Pat Inglesby, when you were growing up? He would have been, he'd have been on telly doing his little child-based art and poems and things like that. He's, he's a prolific poet, uh, a self-confessed right. man, manic depressive. But uh, he released a book of poetry, I bought it off him for a fiver at some market somewhere, and right there in the middle uh, was, was these four most powerful lines I've ever heard in poetry. Her father used to mm. hit her, and so she abused every man who ever loved her, until she found a man who hit her, and then she felt at home again. Isn't that powerful and very, very sad? I know it doesn't really fully relate to what we're talking about, uh, but it's just a way that these things can be brought into a relationship, I imagine. Yes, yeah, and it is, and it's very sad you know, and it's very sad that that he's experienced that through the eyes of a child. Um, it's very sad that that's how he felt, he, you know, that's the only way his mother was able to be in relationships. And I, But I think one of the key things that I'm taking away from that as well is that as an adult, he wrote that as his experiences as a child. And, you know, I think in, previ in previous years and in previous plans the government have brought out, they've always discussed children as being witnesses of domestic abuse. But this plan, and I would wholeheartedly agree with it, discusses children as being victims of domestic abuse. Even if the abuse isn't directed towards them, they are. you, you cannot live in a family home where there's 
any level of abuse and not be impacted by it. And and that is that's heartbreaking because we know then that there's thousands of children in Ireland today who are witnessing, who are experiencing that abuse and they are they they have nobody to be able to speak to and nowhere to go. So I, I am delighted that in this plan that they are identifying children and that supports need to be put in place for them as well. Because again, it's the if unless we're going to tackle these issues, we're going to keep seeing the same thing coming up over and over again. And of course, we're not in very smooth waters. We're in rough waters economically when it comes to household budgeting and making mm. ends meet, of course. Uh, the, biz- the business end of this proposal, of course, is that the maximum sentence yes. for assault causing harm, uh, a common domestic abuse offence, will be doubled now from five to ten years. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean... I'm, I'm happy to see that reform in place. Um, I do think it is required. You know, it's, I thought from our experience, and, and this is literally just from, you know, Yana's experience, that we don't see many women who, who take partners or ex-partners um, to court for for domestic abuse, for assaults, um, for coercive control. I think that's something that, you know, it's, it's, it's the watershed element, really. It's, it's the point of no and, return, really, isn't it? Going to court. Well, it is. And, and I think, you know, there has to be trust and faith in the system that they're going to be believed and that, you know, and even when there is repercussions or consequences like a prison sentence, um, my personal opinion has that it, it has always been fairly lenient. So I'm really happy to see that they're actually doubling the amount of time from five years to ten years and I hope that that is taken seriously in the courts and that it's used and I thought that's one of the things where where time will tell for us but All I right, think Ruth. It's, it's a really important element. Thank you very much Ruth uh, Ruth Lehan, Project Coordinator for YANA uh, discussing the government publishing their new zero tolerance strategy to tackle domestic, sexual and gender based violence thank you very much Ruth and good morning Thanks very much. Okay now if you've Thanks. been affected by the issues discussed here a number of uh, uh, telephone numbers you can make contact with. Yana themselves is an East Cork number. It's 024 25389. The National 24 Hour Rape Crisis Helpline, uh, which I mentioned in the interview, is 1 800 778 The issues of insurance next on the Neil Prendeville Show. Talk to Neil Prendeville now. 0818 104 Cork's Red FM. 29 minutes past 10. Good morning to you. This is Mick here on the Neil Prendeville Show. Now, we've all been there wondering why our TV supply company or our electricity supply company are charging us more than they are for new customers walking up to them and getting massive, massive discounts. This is particularly true, of course, in the insurance industry. And a ban on insurance companies punishing customers who are loyal to them with higher renewal charges is set to come into effect from tomorrow. Now, this move would not stop new customers getting discounts, of course, but would ensure the market was fairer, the central bank has said. Now, no, no greater expert on that topic uh, than Paul Kavanagh from the McCarthy Insurance Group. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Mick. Do you do you welcome this? Is 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 it a practice you you would welcome into the marketplace? I uh, absolutely, it's a practice that that's welcomed. Um, it probably hasn't gone far enough. Uh, that that we were, I think, that when Pierre Starty set out about this about uh, eighteen months ago or two years ago, uh, I thought you know that he would try and have uh, what we call differential pricing outlawed, 
uh, as they have in the UK. But this uh, this will work especially for loyal customers who stay with the same insurance company and demand, may I say, to stay with the same insurance company uh, that they've been with for years. They can say, oh, I, I'm, I'm way happier with them. Well, it seems that the insurance companies had algorithms and all types of things going on to say that the propensity to renew uh, was higher with those people, so they charged them more. Yeah, then that, that kind of that's kind of immoral, isn't it? If if you're saying, okay, we have an algorithm. It is. I think that, that anybody who watched the debate in the doll that time, I think it, it was highly embarrassing for the insurance companies uh, that the, that this had been put in front of them. That you are actually you have people that are actually. <laughs> having this propensity to renew going on. Yeah. So well, what it really involves is they use an algorithm or some method of data collection to say that Mick is up for his insurance renewal. Uh, we can stick that uh, another 120 quid on that because uh, he's been with us for three years. He renews very quickly. Uh, he's of a certain income. Uh, he's not going to be bothered shopping around. Let's stick it to him. And he pays... He pays by direct debit every year. Yeah. So and it, so rather than set up a new direct debit, another factor in the algorithm, I suppose, we think uh, yes. that we can get him. The differential is absolutely crazy if you do shop around between the insurance providers. Now, I know uh, MIG are brokers, so you'd be shopping around quite a lot. Well, why is there such a, a price differential? And is it age-related? Yes, there is there's, there is ageism involved in it, and and I'm actually surprised that Age Action Ireland haven't been stronger on this. Uh, the, as you grow older, the num- we have 17 insurers quoting motor insurance currently, and as you get older, uh, once you move over the 60 bracket into the 70 bracket, all of a sudden, uh, and the number of insurers declines, and all of a sudden you're at a stage that maybe as uh, when you're, you know, is it 70 that you have to get your new license? And all of a sudden, there's only one or two quoting. But yes. then that's, that's, you know, that needs to be addressed. Yeah, so they're, they're, that is not addressed in this. They're, they're, they're creaming the part of the market which is the lowest risk. I, <laughs> I'm sure they'd hang me out to dry. Uh, if you I can't comment on that. You, but I am, agree, I am agreeing with you, Mick. Of course, I am. It's immoral in my view. I've raised it with the insurance companies myself personally, every time I've met them, they will say to you, oh, we're not doing that. And I'll say, well, I'll give you the proof. You are charging older drivers over than, or over than 70. They've nowhere to go and they should be getting better premiums. Why are you charging them more? Okay, now reports compiled by the Central Bank have found that those who stay loyal to the same home insurer uh, can pay €161 Euros a year more for cover than a new customer. Uh, are people more inclined to stay with the same insurer for home than they are for motor? Yes, they are indeed. There, we, we, we would find, Mick, especially in Cork, there are people that have been insured. We'd say, as you know, in years gone by, there was the, the, the South Mall, there would have been 20 insurers on the South Mall. I think we, we, ourselves and one other are, are all that's left at, at the moment. Uh, maybe two others on the Mall, do you know what I mean? So, and we are brokers, so we're not insurers. So they would have gone, oh, I've been with them, I've gone down the mail every year, and I go down, and they get the money out of the post office, and they pay their premium. And they, go to, they do the same routine year in, year out, irrespective of price. Yeah, I, I was it's with, the, the, I was with the same insurer, we were with the same insurer for 20 years, and uh, would always bargain down by saying, look, we found a better price, but really had no intention of leaving, until the price became very, very starkly huge. The price differential and the savings were coming up at 50%. You, you can't stay anymore when you're being abused like that. Absolutely not. And, and to be fair, loyalty wasn't being rewarded at the other end of the line. 
by the insurer when it came to a sticky situation such as a claim. Yeah, that's, that's so the old saying in the insurance companies, isn't it? That there was no... Sorry? Yeah, that's the old saying in the insurance companies. You're covered for everything except a claim. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I mean, my greatest joy is when I'm handing over a cheque for a claim. Actually, I just spoke to Murphy there in our, from my office, and he just indicated we just settled the claim for, for uh, on a house where for €42,000 yesterday, and I'm going, you know what, that's great. That's absolutely great. That's what Those insurance is for. Money. That's what it's for, absolutely. Okay, so what, what, what protections does this new legislation bring in for people who are uh, maybe two years w- with a the company? They can't be price gouged, yeah. is it? Yeah, they can't be price gouged uh, on, on, on year two, not the first renewal, and they can still be offered a, a discount on, on year one, so... If you're with company A today, company B can offer you 100 euros off uh, to take you in. But once you're in the door at, at the next renewal, they can drop it. Okay. And when you say the McCarthy Insurance Group, the price. When, when you say that MIG uh, have 17 competing uh, insurance companies that offer insurance, do, do they all get to quote on every individual request? No, no, they don't. Uh, some of them are, uh, so we'd have uh, three insurers that will on young drivers. Uh, and then the vast majority of the insurers, all 17 probably are, 15 of the 17 would want the market, the, the, the prime market, which is 30 to, 30 to 50 married couple, insured and partner or whatever, own their own host. You see, the insurance companies have all this information. They can find out what is the perfect risk, who, who is not in debt, who, who, who pays their direct debit in time, which they know from you paying them. You know, they, yeah. so they go for their perfect risk and they get the best rate. And then above that, as you get older, uh, the number of insurers, as I said earlier, declines. So does it pay people to shop around, Paul, or does it pay people to use a broker like yourselves? Well, sorry, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of both, to be quite honest with you. We will do as much of the market as we can for them, right? Uh, and in general, we do win on the day. Uh, we, we would win two out of every three that would come in the door to us because we're able to demonstrate to them that we can find them a better price uh, with another insurance company. And, with, and most importantly, Mick, people, I hate this word comprehensive. There's no such thing as the word comprehensive. You must find out what are all the covers that are on offer, such as the comprehensive driving of other cars. How many windscreen claims that can you have? Uh, if you break down, uh, uh, are we going to take you home? Are we, go- are, we go- are we just going to take our car away? Or what are we going to do for you? Or am I going to arrive with a tow rope? No, I am going to get your car. I mean, my, my reputation and the reputation of McCarthy Insurance Group is on the line. So we provide a 24-7 emergency helpline for all our clients to make sure they're looked after. And I'd be quite honest with you, I'm at the end of that line if there's any troubleshooting to be done. Okay, uh, and... As regards changing of elements that are constituted in a, in a policy, uh, because my wife has often spotted, hang on, the, the, the windscreen cover is gone or the open driving has gone off this and the price has gone up. Yeah. And then when you contest that, they put it on. But invariably, when you contest the price, there's always wriggle room. So it's kind of, it's kind of stupid not to ring up and contest, isn't it? Well, no, like, it, I always say, assume nothing, ask questions. Simple as that. We're, that's what we're there for. Though. We're there to talk to you and just say, no, I guarantee you that cover is there. We will stand by our word. And we, on top of that, we have professional indemnity to cover us up to 20 million. We're covered for any mistake we make. So 
we're out there for sure that our clients are looked after, number one. Okay. So the essence of this is that after two years with any one company, uh, I'm not sure does it include brokers, if you move on and get an introductory offer, uh, you can't keep that offer in the second year. Uh, how do you make sure you don't get caught here? How do you make sure you're saving money all the time? Because it's more important now than ever uh, to watch the family finances. As you said earlier, by shopping around and talking to a broker. Okay. It costs you nothing to talk to a broker. All right. Finally, Paul, because I know you're an expert in the area, we've lots of young drivers coming into the insurance schemes, uh, you know, getting their first insurances and all of that. Uh, what's the advice out there in general if, if you're entering insurance for the first time outside of shopping around? Uh, is, it, is it all down to the extras that are covered or, you know, are people, would you advise people to just get on the road for the cheapest they can? That's a very difficult one because, you see, uh, you know, we've all been there, Mick. Get the car on the road. That's all we want to do, get moving, right? Until something happens. When something happens, it's it's when something happens that you're kind of going, well, am I covered for this? Like a a broken windscreen will cost you up to 300 euros on your your whatever, your Nissan Micra or your your Ford Fiesta. So where are you going to pull the 300 euros out of if if you don't have windscreen cover? Mm Mm-hmm. And that's, no, so. and that's probably an extra tenor on your policy, is it? That's, it's, it's, built into, it's built into most of them, yes. Absolutely, yeah. it's built into all the comprehensive policies at this stage. Okay, as if to... Uh, so it's, it, it, it's asked the questions, I think, but like, well, I want to stress there to the young drivers that are out there because we're coming across a lot of this at the moment that you know, get, your, get your lessons in whatever shape or form, get your lessons. We have two insurance companies giving a, a 10% discount if you have your lessons done, right? So 10% off of a premium of 3,000 euros is 300 euros. So get your discounts, get your driving experience, get driving in under your parents. There's a number of companies that will do that for you. So get that done as well. Get some driving, get a year's driving experience under your belt before you go out. And then the picking of the car is important. Um, there's been a lot of um, news there recently. It was in the Echo there the other night about Japanese imports. Uh, and the difficulty with them. And the difficulty is that the parts don't fit. So the insurance companies, I don't think, actually, if somebody comes into us today with a brand new, uh, for a brand new uh, coat uh, on a Japanese import, I don't think we can coat it. Why? I, I know there, there's a propensity for them getting stolen because they don't have the, um, the immobilizers. Have immobilizers. Here, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so and, but a lot of people that buy them don't even know that. Yeah, well, we did highlight it last week on the program. I think you might have been on holidays, but um, uh, a text in support of you, Paul. I was indeed, Mick, but you're, you're, you are correct. You did, this needs to be pointed out. And I, I know uh, I, I was called to a, a client recently who got a bit irate because he had bought the car. He had already bought the Japanese import, and we had nobody to insure it. Wow. Yeah, so, so it's grand if it's on your existing policy, but just to, I always say, take nothing for granted, assume nothing, ask the questions. You, you know what assume stands for? Making an ass of you and me. That's what assume is. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Mick, I have to say, MIG are very good to deal with, very efficient, and always seem to source me the best prices because I hate shopping about for insurance. It's a right pain. Uh, thanks, says Carmel. So that's as if to validate what you're saying. So really, you should be getting your insurance quote before you purchase a car, just to be sure. Just to be sure. Uh, and now, uh, with the insurer, get the reg number of the vehicle that you're talking about buying as well. That's another tip, because that we can feed that in. We feed that into the computer, and it will tell us if it has been damaged in the past. 
Here's one for you. Okay. So it's that's... like a car check. That, it's almost a free car check when you look for the insurance quote like as well. So. We've highlighted a, num- a number of people. We've highlighted the cars where the car has been written off. And, yeah. the, and, the, and the client hasn't been told. Don't ever buy... Get, uh, bring someone with you. Bring a garage guy with you. We all know a mechanic or somebody. You know what I mean? Buy from a reputable dealer. Make sure you get a warranty on the vehicle. There are all the tips that the young... You see, when we're young, we all want, we all want to get on the road... Let's get moving. But like, I mean, something I know from my own son, he bought a golf there one time and just, he got three month warranty and the, the wind went in month four. That's fact. That happened. Yeah, and it can so, happen, and I guess. there's nobody to go back on. Yeah, but the, I, I suppose the, the message here is get, get with a proper broker or a proper shop around with um, one of the many, many insurance companies that are out there. Uh, evaluate your insurance costs before you purchase the vehicle because, uh, as you say, there may be uh, a, a slowness of availability for parts for certain vehicles. There may be a vehicle with a checkered history that's been covered up by a non-reputable dealer and you don't know what sort of a a maelstrom you're going to be walking into there. So it's a minefield, but thank you for navigating uh, people through it, Paul. And uh, thank you for uh, offering your expertise again on the Neil Prandeville Show this morning. We're there to help, Mick. Just <laughs> call into any one of our offices or give us a ring. Thanks. That's Paul Kavanagh of McCarthy Insurance Group. Now then, some good news for somebody who may have lost their uh, Elton John tickets. We have received a call from an honest and upstanding listener who's found a pair of Elton John tickets and is looking to reunite them with their owner. So if you've lost a pair... You can uh, ring us on 0818 104 You can text us on 0868 We have details on the tickets, guys, so no chancers here. If you want to chance winning Elton John tickets, stay listening, because in the next 60 minutes or so, we're going to be playing an Elton John song, and it's the final pair of tickets we have to give away as we're sorting out your summer musically. Elton John playing Parky Kiev tomorrow night on his farewell Yellow Brick Road tour. But the very honest listener, I just want to th- uh, thank them, male or female, I'm not sure, who's found a pair of Elton John tickets. We have the details and so no chances. If you've lost Elton John tickets, please ring us 0818 104 or text us on 0868 104 This is the Neil Prenderville Show. Text in WhatsApp 086-8104-106. Gork's Red FM. 13 minutes to 11. Good morning from the Neil Prenderville Show. Good morning, Mick. And just to wrap up on the insurance uh, issue, my insurance just renewed. I'm not going to mention the company name here. I'm just going to call it ABC Insurance, okay? Because there's a trick involved here. My insurance just renewed and I managed to save decent money and get more coverage at the same time. My renewal quote was 790 for third party. ABC Insurance was also the cheapest, always the cheapest for me, but I've uh, always have to set up a new policy to save anything. But this year, I managed to get fully comp for 750. Third party was 790, now remember. Fully comp for 750 with ABC Insurance by getting a new quote online and going with that one instead of my renewal. So even though this person was an existing customer, by going online, and I don't know how, because I'm sure the questions are asked, uh, they presented as uh, a new customer and got that uh, fantastic discount. Uh, So well done there. Now then, uh, the NAPD tells principals and deputies to make sure to take a break this summer. Two-thirds of school leaders are experiencing burnout due to stress in 2022, a new survey has revealed. And the NPD director, or NAPD director, Paul Crone, joins us on the line. And uh, a very good morning, Paul. Welcome to the Neil Prendival Show. Good morning. Okay. Uh, now, this uh, is kind of an emotive topic. It can be very polarised, because we're going to have listeners who say, yes, 
uh, school leaders and principals are absolutely entitled to a very, very long summer break, like a politician. And those who say, you know, these holidays are excessive. Burnout? We're all struggling. Uh, where do you stand on that? Obviously on the teacher's side. Well, uh, to be fair, I'm not, I'm not talking about teacher holidays. Um, school principals don't get teacher's holidays, to be fair. Um, and I say that as I was a principal for 11 years, and now I am working for the National Association of Principals and Deputy Principals. So they get less, is it? And very much less. Um, I know, uh, and, and, and on average, part of our survey says that the school principals work, on average, 25 hours per week during the full school holidays. Now, that's, that figure alone skews our other figure, which says that principals work 53 hours per week. Now, if you factor in that they work 25 hours per week during school holidays, that would lead us to believe they're working in excess of 60 to 65 hours per week during the school term. So I guarantee you, you go into any school today in a post-primary school and you will have the principal and deputy will be present in the school. We're urging them to try and take as much of July as they can because they haven't had a summer break for the last two years. But then you follow on the bank holiday uh, weekend in August, you go into any second level school and the principal and deputy principal will be present there for a full three to four weeks, probably more even, in preparation for the opening of the school year. So principals and deputies do not by any stretch get what is considered to be teachers' holidays. And very often they're lucky to get two to three weeks during the summer. They're managing building projects during the summer. They're managing maintenance, enrolling students, issues that that arise um, with teacher recruitment is taking huge time. So it's, it's while other teachers may be on a break, the principal and deputy are actually entering into a, a very stressful time because they're not sure whether buildings works will be complete by the new year. They're not sure they're going to have a full cohort staff in place. And the, the summertime can be a hugely stressful time for principals and deputies. So that's why we're urging them to prioritise their own well-being and take that, that time. And when they're in the full of their health and renew the battle again in early August in preparation for the opening of the school year on the 1st of September. The word battle stands out there. So you're saying that these school leaders have a, an absolute sheer quantity of work uh, that they undertake. Is, is that right across the board? And, and that's, that's the point. We call it our well-being survey, but it's a well-being and workload. And, and I've travelled around the country and I've met principals uh, regionally. And, and over the last number of years, the number one item is always, and always, every meeting I go into is, this, this is not sustainable. We can't continue at this level, the sheer volume of work. And as part of our own strategic review, which we undertook between September and November last year, and we asked uh, principals and deputies, what is the one thing that NAPD can do for you? And the first thing is reduce the volume of workload. Now, the example I'll use to you is the school that I was principal of, 1,000 pupil school, I had approximately 100 employees. There was a building of uh, 8,000 square metres. Any small or medium enterprise of that size would have a financial manager. They'd have a human resources manager. They'd have a plant manager. They're all the principal. The principal does all of those things. So um, principals, the motivating factor for principals is their students. And and they put up with an awful lot because the students benefit. But in our survey, principals are telling us they're spending 12.6% of their working week working with students. And what we're saying is that's not enough. They need, they, they want to be able to, to focus on the working with their students. Yes, they're saying, 72% of them are saying there's far too much time spent 
on administration, which is in excess of 30% of their working week is spent just purely on administration. Isn't it an admin person that's needed then to supplement the uh, abilities well, of the principal? That, that's, that's, that's something that we will be pushing very strongly and it, it, it's going to involve negotiations with the department and all of the other stakeholders because any change, and I have to acknowledge that, the, that there have been changes over the last while, the, the Centre for School Leadership was founded, 2017, second deputy principal was given to larger second level schools. There was a partial restoration of the post of responsibility in schools in 2018. Uh, and that, that, that has, that's significant investment. But our 2022 survey clearly indicates more needs to be done. And uh, we would be kind of very much strongly saying something needs to be done in the area of administration, okay. administrative support. Uh, more than one teacher, of course, uh, is residing in Dáil Éireann in this current uh, in this current term. Uh, our teacher being one of them. Uh, is there an understanding at top government levels of, of the, the stresses involved here as principals? I, I, I think this, this started in 2019. Our president at the time was Kieran Golden, principal in Mayfield Community School, and he addressed the minister at the time, which was Joe McHugh. And Joe McHugh heard us, and we formed a working group. So we... we we're getting very positive messages from the Department of Education and policy can only be formed on the basis of evidence and empirical evidence. And so far we've only had, in many ways, anecdotal. But this is the empirical evidence that will hopefully be the catalyst that will make, I suppose, immediate action to support principals and deputies. So yes, we are getting a positive response, but I think it's important for principals and deputies at this time of the year to know that their voice is being heard, to know that it, it, it's been looked at, it's been advocated for, that we're acknowledging that, and this is not just COVID, this was before COVID. COVID hasn't helped, but this has been building over an, a number of years that, yes, there is a commitment that we are going to push to do something. So why elevate yourself uh, from the teacher level, if you like, with those extended holidays that a lot of people... I think are unfair. A lot of people will champion that they are necessary. Why elevate yourself? Is it for money? Uh, into into no, the more stressful uh, principal position? No, and, 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 and I know, again, I, 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 from my own point of view and speaking to other, other principals, people take the position because they feel they can make a difference. They want to make a difference. They have a vision for a student-centred education system. And very often... That, that is, and, and the interview for principal is around the principal teacher, how you can improve the learning environment, the student's experience and all that. But when you get there, we're in a society now where governance, compliance and oversight are, are, are hugely um, restrictive in, in, in what you can do. The principal is the most legislated for position in, 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 in Europe. So what in you're saying really is that there are too many deliverables on the plate of a, of a school principal? There's very much are. Yeah, okay. And yet our priority wants to be the students. So we need to get a little bit of support to do the other bits so that we can put the student firmly at the centre. Okay. Are they entitled, I'm asked, to force majeure days? Are they entitled to five or six of them per annum? They, 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 they generally would... For for example, if it was a, 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 a like everybody else, the bereavement of a, of a, a close relative, you would. But what we find is they might be entitled to three or four days, 
but they they don't take that because such are the demands. Okay, and what you're what you're saying now and appealing to all principals who might be listening is is to take that well earned break in July. Exactly. All right. Exactly. Pri- they prioritise yourself, prioritise your family, and recharge your batteries. Okay. Take a break this summer. NAP Director Paul Crown, thank you very much for coming on the Neil Prendeville Show this morning. Uh, thank just you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Paul. Just before we go to news, just to get through some more of the text, I like to try and cover all of them because people take the trouble of texting in. Uh, it's not uh, p- possible every day to get through all of yesterday's text, but let's try. I can't wait for the crash. I'm able to get my extension done for a reasonable fee then. Forget about the unions. They're in the government's pockets, says another texter. Uh, this texture says, if the whole country went green, all electric motors, all houses, solar panels, thousands of trees planted, no eating beef, etc., etc., it wouldn't do anything because the likes of India, China and the USA do nothing. Climate is beyond repair. So Eamon Ryan is just an idiot, says this texture. He should move to the above-mentioned countries and lecture them instead. People are spending more now on the lotto, hopefully, that their luck will be in. I myself doing lotto since it started. I've never won anything big. And uh, one final texture, 180 euro for a ticket for Elton John. People are supporting this venue are the very same people who are cribbing about the cost of living. So says the Baldy Barber. And we're giving away free tickets for Elton John in the next hour. We're going to play you an Elton John song, sung by Elton himself. Of course, Elton's playing Parky Cube tomorrow night, and we have the final set of free tickets to give away. We'll open the lines as soon as the song starts in the next hour on 0818-104-106. That's also our number if you want to get in touch with the programme or by text or WhatsApp on 0868-104-106. With the uh, time now at 2 minutes to 11, news on the way. 104 to 106 Red FM. This is the Neil Frienderville Show. And just to uh, get to an email that uh, I didn't get to yesterday before we go back to our phone lines, uh, Mick, can I just say we as a people can only blame ourselves for what's happening in our country today. I was a Fianna Fáil supporter, never voted for anyone else but Fianna Fáil, and this was all because of my family. I never did my own free thinking until one election. It was a light bulb moment and I'd seen something I couldn't figure out. It was so deplorable I thought, no way will I ever again vote for Fianna Fáil. But what I'm saying is there are many more people today who, if they vote, will always vote for the same party. It's like when an election comes around, uh, we get amnesia, we forget about all the broken promises, and we just believe this time it's only going to get better. Uh, We will never learn as a people. It's been said many times on your show today, we need to take a proper look at the French people. Do they really think they would allow themselves to be humiliated by a government the way we allow ourselves to be humiliated by successive governments? I pity if we end up with Sinn Féin in the next election. There is no political party will be able to undo what this shower will leave behind them. I'm actually asking myself, is their objective to let the country go as bad as possible and knowing they're finished and the party is over? I just want the Irish people to realise if we vote for Sinn Féin, don't think they'll be able to undo every bad decision this incapable bunch of bloodsuckers have left behind. Heavy words. It'll be at least three terms for Sinn Féin to put this country back together. We are like sheep being led to the slaughter. We have the lowest investment in education per GDP, according to the OECD, the biggest class sizes in Europe, huge pressure on nurses because of the nurse-to-patient ratio and a shortage of Gardaí. But yet, what they're saying, it's more TDs we need. TDs don't tell lies and they don't tell the truth. They're just honest gangsters. And the standing charge on your gas and electricity bill is to maintain the grid. Uh, I'm sick and tired of living in this corrupt country. On top of that, there's a load of banking fees just after hitting. I'm out of work now. Uh, I blame this government and I woke this morning to find AIB had taken nearly 73 
euro for fees. Please keep uh, my name and uh, protect my anonymity. Keep my name off the air. Uh, and there you go. That's uh, one of the typical emails coming into the programme these days. Now, I'm going to talk to a drag queen who performs at nightclubs in the UK and Spain and has been nominated uh, for the Positive Role Model Award at the National Diversity Awards uh, from the UK. And I'm speaking uh, because uh, we're going to talk to Gary, who's from the north side of Cork originally. Morning, Gary. Good morning, how are you? Very good. Now, uh, what part of the north side? Uh, just uh, by the train station. Okay. <laughs> Not, yeah. too <laughs> Not too far no, north. Not too far north. No, no, just, just, just on the verge. <laughs> okay. And uh, your alter ego is Chi-Chi Monroe, is that the correct pronunciation? It is indeed, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what's life like? You took to the Scottish drag scene first, yeah? No, I actually started off in Benidorm. Uh, myself and my husband started uh, doing it in Benidorm, and then we auditioned for uh, cabaret bars over in Gran Canaria. Um, and then I worked in the two big cabaret bars there. So there was Ricky's Cabaret Bar first, where I was for a couple of years, and then I moved up to Sparkle Show Bar, which was upstairs in the same uh, complex. Um, and they're both like hugely well known over in um, in Gran Canaria as being the best cabaret bars over there. So I, I kind of learned everything while I was there from the other queens and from the other um, people that I was working with over there and then over the years built up a following from that and then moved back to the UK uh, just the week before lockdown and got back into healthcare full time obviously because everything went into lockdown so that was all the drag gigs cancelled for an indefinite amount of time so yeah yeah, I've been working full time in healthcare ever since. So you're now a finalist in the 2022 National Diversity Awards. You've been shortlisted for the Positive Role Model Award in the LGBT category. What sort of criteria did you succeed in uh, getting nominated there on? Uh, the thing is, it's like you're nominated by the public. So I don't know who nominated me, how many nominations I got or anything. Um, once you're nominated, they give you access to a little portal. So you can see the comments that everybody voting for you have left, but you can't see who they are or or their contact details, whatever. So I was seeing all the comments coming through, which were absolutely lovely. And I think the majority of them have been because of my charity work and because of just being there supporting people through my social media, Instagram, Facebook, whatever it is. Um, that's, that's what most of the nominations were covering. So it, it, like, it was absolutely lovely to see because a lot of the stuff I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought any different. I thought everybody would just go and do these things. So it kind of, put me out of my way or anything, you know what I mean? I just just trying to kind of help and be nice and kind of uh, put a positive, uplifting kind of message out with my in, with my Instagram and Facebook. Okay, so let, let's talk about your charity thing in a few moments. First of all, I'd, I'd like yeah. to zone in, if you, if you don't mind, on, on the drag situation. Would it be unfair of me to think that the drag situation is also aligned with Sunshine Destinations? Or is it healthy, for instance, where you are now in Scotland? No, there is a healthy drag scene here. Um, I think in the holiday destinations, it's a lot more common because obviously there's a lot more competition in bars and clubs and stuff over there. And I think it's kind of a, a thing that you go away to see as well. Like in the cabaret bars, it's very PC. It's very uh, family friendly. Do you know what I mean? It's not too full on until after a certain time when the kids should be in bed. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think the drag scene like in Scotland is very healthy. But I think in Ireland, uh, just the same, it's, it's it's gradually getting stronger and stronger. I think the drag scene in Ireland though, has always been quite strong because you had the likes of Panty and Veda and Davina Victoria, Dolly and Shirley. Is like they've always been playing the flag for Ireland. So, 
Um, yeah, not not a, such a huge scene in Ireland, though, as it would be abroad. Would no, it, it's kind of mainly focused in Dublin, but you can see Cork is, is kind of starting to get with the times a bit. <laughs> yeah. And is, is that because of misconceptions from the general public, uh, that it's, uh, it's not healthy so. entertainment? I people, yeah, I think that a lot of people just kind of make an instant misconception of what drag is. At the end of the day, it, you're an entertainer putting on a uniform and entertaining people. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's like any job. Uh, it's like an actor putting on a costume and acting out a role. You're playing a part. Um, but I think people kind of have their own kind of connotations of what, what, what they understand it to be. And I don't know. I think if people opened up their minds a bit and actually looked into it, they'd understand it a lot more. Mm. And there's so many different types of drag. And it, it's just evolved so much over the years as well. So you have to kind of take that into account as well. And are you in, intending to stay in Scotland or go, or go back to the sunshine to where the scene is more vibrant? No, maybe? no. Um, back to settle back here in Scotland now. So it's nicely in the middle between Ireland and my husband's family down in Manchester. So it's kind of a good base. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, then. Now, you're currently working full-time as a supported shelter housing coordinator in Edinburgh. Uh, but yeah. now you're using your drag platform for raising awareness and fundraising for charities. Tell us about that. Well, the thing is, um, I appeared on uh, Say Yes to the Rest Las Vegas with my now husband. We got married on TV, and since that, our following started growing and growing. Uh, and that's when people started contacting me, asking if I could maybe share something to promote this, that, and the other. But I started kind of looking into all the different um, requests that were coming in and decided to just kind of focus on different areas and try and basically just use the platform to promote charities and small businesses and local queens and local talents and just try and kind of just just raise awareness and just get get the get their stories out there and try and use my little bit of platform to help them in any way I could. Okay, and it's that's that's no mean feat going on say yes to the dress Vegas. Uh yeah. that that builds your profile and of course uh, you had your dresses and rings created by the renowned fa- fashion designer David Emmanuel. Yeah. That's no small feat either. Yeah, he's a, he still messages every now and again. He, he's an absolutely lovely man. Uh, we had a great time. We were over there for 10 days. Um, and we spent we spent a lot of time with him outside filming as well. It was really, really good. Is that the guy who designed Princess Di's wedding dress? Or am I getting a name yeah, wrong? It yeah. is, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, all right. So you were the first couple in history uh, in the history of the show to be married in drag. Yeah, uh, there's been a couple since, but we were the the first ones on Say Yes to Dress to do it. So, uh, yeah, it was a bit. It was definitely experience. It was a crazy week, but um, yeah, it was it was amazing. Okay, now you've raised thousands for charities, including the National Health Service, Macmillan Cancer Support, and Waverley Care, uh, which is Scotland's HIV and Hepatitis C charity. Uh, can you tell me about being, I suppose, pardon the pun, dragged into? the charity yeah. genre, because uh, with, with your growing fame, of course, uh, on the Say Yes to the Dress thing, you had fellow queens and audience members kind of treating you like a counsellor, messaging, messaging you for advice, uh, and then you're, you know, you're almost like a Samaritan, you're listening to harrowing stories, and uh, I suppose when you become Chichi Monroe, uh, maybe it's a little different uh, to Gary, and maybe, the, maybe you know, you're more open to helping people. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Well, I think... Chichi is kind of an exaggerated version of myself. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of everything on a bigger scale. Um, like Chichi would do things that Gary would never do. Do you know what I mean? A lot more confidence in, in the personality and everything. Do you know what I mean? Uh, Gary's quite quiet, quiet and shy, to be honest. <laughs> um, I think when, when Chichi goes on, it, it's kind of just the, the other side of me comes out. 
Uh, but I'm still the same personality-wise, and, like, I always try and, like, like help, and I'll always go out of my way to do anything for anybody. It's like, I've kind of always been like that. That's just the way I was brought up. Um, but I think when people started coming to me, I kind of, I don't know, I, I, I thought it was nice that they would trust me enough to come to me and ask these things. So, obviously, I went out of my way to try and help them, but then it just kind of started to become more and more people. So... I ended up kind of advising people to go to certain places for help because obviously there's going to be situations that I have no idea what advice to give. So you can just quickly look up where the person's from and what the local help is in that area and just let them know. Okay, so, so this... It's, 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 it's that kind of stuff, really. Yeah, so you, you, you've become a role model, really, as a positive LGBT, um, as a positive role model within the LGBT community. And out of 72,000 nominees... 72,000. Yeah, that was crazy. Chi Chi Monroe is now up for a title to be crowned the positive LGBT role model. Uh, and also to have Chi Chi's amazing achievements in, term, uh, in terms of charity work recognised on a national level. Is there a peerage on the way here? I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> Would you accept you one know. as a Cork Norrie? Of course. <laughs> Why not? All right. Any title. <laughs> well, the National Diversity Awards continue to gain endorsements from high-profile figures, including Sir Lenny Henry, CBE, and Cork's own Graham Norton, uh, of course. So we wish you all the very best, yeah. Gary and Chichi as well. Thank you very much. And a great recognition Thank for you, for you and I'm, I'm sure it's very well deserved. Thanks oh, very thank much. You. Thank you. Cheers. Talk to you later. Thank Thanks. You. Bye-bye. Bye. It's me. It doesn't matter. I've stopped correcting people. Sorry, at the, I've stopped correcting people at this stage. Uh, Gary Cantwell from Cork originally, and uh, uh, performing at nightclubs in the UK and Spain as Chichi Monroe, and nominated for the Positive Role Model Award at the National Diversity Awards in the UK from the North Side of Cork uh, originally. Some good news. There isn't much of it about at the moment. So uh, happy to bring you tidings of cheer uh, from Lea Healthcare. There is some positive news. While medical inflation is driving up the cost of healthcare. Our proactive claims and cost management teams means we can give back to our members. So if you're a Leia Healthcare member, you're going to be delighted here. Uh, this is why they say for the second time in two years, second time in two years, we're giving an additional member support benefit payment to our members. That's a once-off payment now, but it's going to go to 650,000 members. The once-off payment will be €85 Euro for each adult member, and €35 for each child member. And that means, for example, a family of two adults and two kids will get €240 from us. Members must have a current active policy on the 1st of June 2022 to qualify for the support payment. That's quite a lot of cash. They're going to be giving out 650,000 members with Leia and the once-off payment will be if you have an active policy on the 1st of June 2022, uh, €85 Euros for each adult member and €35 Euros for each child member, meaning a family of two adults and two kids will get €240. Euros. Before we take a break, just to uh, get through some more of your texts, uh, on the banking fees, uh, Mick, can you tell me, are the banks still charging quarterly fees? Yes, I imagine they are. Uh, we mentioned yesterday and commended volunteers from the Penny Dinners for going to the Ukraine. Good morning, Mick. I see volunteers from Penny Dinners have gone to the Ukraine again. While this is a great cause, I think Penny Dinners should just do what it was started to do. Feed the people of Cork City and County. I remember long ago passing there with my late ma'am and seeing all the old gentlemen eating there. Nowadays, there are even more people hungry around us in our city and I feel Penny Dinners is trying to do far too much in the fields outside what's meant what it's meant to do i hope you don't think i'm negative it's a wonderful service uh, but i feel we need to look after our people here 
in Cork. And there's many texts on the cost of living. Uh, Mick, just to pick up on the Dunn Stores vouchers, they've taken lots of the essential items for families off the vouchers, like nappies, formula and wipes. So you may spend over that 50 uh, but not qualify for the 10 euros off. Okay, it's still a very generous offer, I think. Uh, all these people cribbing and complaining about the price of things over two years ago. Yes, COVID affected things, as did Brexit. People need to wake up that this has very little to do with the war in the Ukraine. This is all down to our government and the put up and shut up attitude of the Irish people. And uh, we should all be out protesting and outstanding for this inflation caused by our own greedy government. It's a disgrace, says a texture. Another one says people have great choices today. Out of work, you receive payment. If you decide to do a community employment scheme on top of your payment, you receive an extra euro. Euro, one euro per hour. What a joke. What a scam. Slave labour is alive and well in Ireland. We should at least be getting three euro per hour. There's no one to represent us, only the media, who hopefully will uh, highlight this outrage. Hi Mick, I'm a pensioner. I'm on my own for two years now. I went into direct debit paying 46 euros a month for my gas two weeks ago. I got notice it it was being revised and now I have to pay 79 euro a month. Not 46, but 79 euro a month to cover my bills. I'd love to speak to you and get more detail on that so we could uh, actually tease it out. And we got many texts yesterday on politicians. Uh, this one says, All Martin, Donoghue and Coveney are after down the road as handy jobs in Europe when they're finished with domestic politics. They're a disgrace. Help everyone else bar their own people. They're a joke. A very heartfelt one there. These gangsters in government, here's another one. These gangsters in government are playing the long game and sowing the seeds of failure for who comes in next so they can turn around and tell the public, he asked for them, he got them. Uh, we're all on the same board, but they're playing chess while the rest of us are playing checkers. They're destroying this country for multiple future generations. Uh, Mick, can you ask what's people's general opinion on the National Day of Strike that the man mentioned earlier? It will take something like that to get the government's attention. And uh, we have a number of texts on this yesterday, and I meant to read it out there. Michael Martin said before the last election, there's no way we're going into coalition with Fine Gael. The people want change, not more of the same. Uh, I guess there was no other option, though, uh, when it came to cobbling together a coalition. Uh, but the texter continues, they put an emergency tax on petrol and diesel in the last recession, and were supposed to take it off when things got better. It never happened. Gangsters all. Uh, and on the HSC, two final texts. Uh, stop, Mick. Tony acted, Tony Holland, I think, acted like a dictator and treated the Irish people like animals the same way he treated the cervical smear ladies. Stop the hero rubbish. Uh, there they go again, moaning again, but doing nothing about it. Every day, same rubbish, but a load of yellow bellies, for God's sake. Tell them get out on the streets and protest. Remember the water charges. Remember the pensioners. We need a national day of protest against this continuing uh, recession that's now being caused by inflation. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. 27 minutes past 11. I want to give a mention to a very, very special gig that's happening in Sea Church in Ballycotton. And indeed, we'll be talking about them around this time tomorrow as well when we welcome uh, uh, another... Uh, guest uh, on the stage of the Sea Church but uh, looking forward to Sunday July 3rd the Remedy Club and Greenshine are playing there and uh, you can you can celebrate American Independence Day at midnight with two of Ireland's best Amer- Americana bands the Remedy Club a brooding masterclass in Americana from Wexford to Nashville uh, so according to the Lonesome Highway and Greenshine the sound of a family immersed in music right in the harmony uh, in love with song and that was from no less than Christy Moore check it out on seachurch.ie we're always proud to support live music here on Cork's Red FM and especially on the Neil Prendeville show. We'll be playing out live 
uh, tomorrow as well uh, with a little very special artist. But the Remedy Club in Greenshine are playing Sea Church in Ballycotton this coming Sunday, the 3rd. To Line 3 and Colin. Good morning, Colin. Morning. Uh, you're driving. I, I, can you speak safely? You want hands-free? I can. I'm just pulling in now. Excellent. Yeah, hands-free anyway. Yeah. Okay. Now, you've got a story about a renewal notice received uh, quite high, uh, €619.71. That's it. So that was substantially more than what the insurance was when I renewed 12 months ago. So went online, uh, got a few online quotes from different companies, and the best quote I got was for, I think you have it in front of you there, 431 for Four, memory? 415.33 I have here. Oh, 415, yeah. 415.30. That's a saving yeah. of over 200 euros. Yeah. And the amazing thing is it's from the same company as I'm currently insured with and sent me the renewal notice. Same company? Same company. Uh, well, I think same that's going, that's going to be shady news. practice from tomorrow onwards with the, with the new legislation. No more price yeah. walking. <laughs> They're, they're walking they you up the ladder as a loyal customer. <laughs> they sent this out two weeks ago. That's the, that's the problem. But, I mean, I simply just uh, renew on the, the cheaper rate. And they, they've just shot themselves in the foot. I mean, who would recommend this company now? I'm not prepared to say the name of the company. Obviously, oh, please don't. Until I, actually renew, until I renew. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please don't anyway. Um, yeah. So did, did, you sh- did you shop around for different companies, yeah? I did, and they were all coming in and around the same price, uh, substantially less than what the renewal notice was. But isn't isn't the problem there if, if you if you take up an offer from a different company that you then you're going to have to prove your no claims bonus and stuff? But you get that in your renewal notice. Um, it all comes that you've got so many years no claims bonus that there's no outstanding. Uh, it, it all comes in your renewal notice package. Okay. So it's quite uh, easy to do. So you, you can copy that and send on to the new insurer if that's, if that's what's needed? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can scan it and, e- and email it to them. That's all they need. So and, the, the uh, advice really is not, not just to shop around, but to go on to the, uh, the, car, car, the company website of the insurer you're, you're already using. Oh, and absolutely, because that happened to me last year, Mick, and I phoned them to see if they could match it. Uh, thinking that I would look after the jobs of the people working in Ireland uh, if they knew that this was going on. And they said, no, there's nothing they can do, that it's an online quote and you have to go do it online. But they would market that I uh, that I had the no claims bonus and I had the driving experience. So they just switched it over. I accepted it online, uh, paid by credit card. It, it was seamless. Okay. And it was they lost they lost money. They lost money by, by offering a supposedly new customer a better rate than someone who's loyal to them. Now the same is yeah. happening with TV service providers with electricity providers uh, and the rest. In fact, I think the the best advice to give is shop around every year. Put the uh, renewal date, you know, 11 months 11 months calendar, and 2 yeah. weeks in, in into your yeah. phone or on your on your calendar and and shop around and get the very best for yourself and your family. Yeah. I mean, buy a SIM-only phone, get get your SIM on a six-month contract. Um, it's for nothing. Get yeah. uh, Sky Sports, I mean, get phone them, tell them you're going to cancel. Oh, well, that always works. They do a deal. They have a customer retention division. They'll, they'll do the best yeah. deal possible. But that, that, only ties, that only gets you three or six months more, though. Because what they'll do is, look, we'll give you a better deal for three months, but then it's going to go up for the second three months. Oh, no, they give it to you. Yeah, but then you're, you're in a six-month contract. And they give you six months at that price. 
Yes. And so, you don't have the six months that they renew it. The, the whole thing is to shop I've been around. Doing, I've been doing that with Sky for the past couple of years. I've been doing it with uh, the phone provider for the last five years. It takes a concentrated effort, though. Some people, and most people, and I know that's what the insurance companies and all the providers are, are playing on. They have an algorithm to say, look, he's not going to bother shopping around. Let's, let's hike it up 100 quid and see if he pays it. We can always drop it when he phones us. Yeah, well, the algorithm doesn't work if you get a, <laughs> someone like me <laughs> who's a, a dog with a bone. Okay, so what services do you engage to save money on? You've just saved over 204 euros on your insurance by uh, logging on to the same company website that quoted you 619.71 and getting it for 415.33. Yeah. What else do you do? Uh, you, you, you do the phone every six months, a SIM-only six-month contract. Yeah. Does, does that allow you to keep your phone number? Yes. Okay. Yeah, the same phone number I've had for the past 20 years. And the uh, next one is your electricity provider. Every 12 months? Every, well, if, you, if you're into a 12-month contract, absolutely. Just put it into your, onto your phone that it, two weeks before it's due to expire, start shopping around. I mean, what? it only takes a few hours, and it's better than doing TikTok or Instagram or that sort of thing. It's more <laughs> beneficial to you. It's, it's productive. It's a money-saving activity. And uh, it beats going out and working for it and paying tax on it, and you're hard-earned. Yeah. Or even being a poor pensioner like me. <laughs> Well, a poor pensioner just saved two, over 200 euro on insurance. Absolutely, uh, yeah. yeah. Thanks for the advice, Colin. Where are you off to? Uh, off to collect, collect the grandkids from their last day at school. All right, fantastic. And we wish them a, a fine summer. Let's hope they, the weather's right, improving from next week. So let, let, let's uh, hope they enjoy it. We'll be back to sue you now if that doesn't happen, mate. <laughs> oh, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> Good luck. Thanks a million. All the best. Uh, thanks Colin great advice there you can contact the program 0818 104 uh, that's by phone or by text or whatsapp 086 8104 106 the great Elton John I wonder is he in Cork already and if he is uh, then uh, welcome to the Neil Prandival show Elton and uh, that, of course, uh, because we're giving away our final set of tickets uh, to the Elton John extravaganza, which is tomorrow night at uh, Parky Kiev. And uh, I wonder uh, if he won them, who Conley Han and Carrick Tool would take along. Who would you bring along, Con? Hello there. How are you doing? Very good. Um, I'd like to bring my girlfriend. Okay. Is she an Elton John fan? She is. She loves Elton John, yeah. She All does. right. Because so I'm considering giving you the tickets now. Very good. I'd be delighted to show you that. I actually like gold dust. I'm only joking. Of course you're going. Uh, with the compliments of the Neil Prandeville show uh, and all of the gang uh, behind the tour, of course, Aiken Promotions, uh, bringing lots of the big gigs. So a pair of tickets we gave away every day, at, uh, Monday to today. The iconic Elton John Farewell Yellow Brick Road Tour, the final tour. Uh, it'll be something to say, kind of a bucket list thing, that you've been there, you've seen him, you saw him live. Uh, what other big gigs have you ever been to before, Con? I've, I've been to Mingham, no, to be honest with you. Uh, I suppose the last one I was at was Michael Jackson a few years ago. Oh, I was at that <laughs> one in Parky Kiev. 
Yeah. That was uh, when he was at the height of his draw, the height of his pulling power. Uh, it was many, many, a long time ago, yeah. It was absolutely incredible. Uh, I've seen some, some of the biggest ones. Uh, I saw one of the great Garth Brooks concerts in the, uh, in the Point Depot. Uh, I saw you too. Uh, myself and Dave Fanning went along to you too. New Year's Eve 1989. Imagine coming on stage at 30 seconds to uh, midnight and uh, the band blasting into a new decade. Uh, that was just the most incredible. And they reduced the size of the Point Depot uh, by about 50% and built a bowl around themselves. So it was really, really special. Uh, other than that, um, they, they would be one of the, uh, two of the best. And I've always said, uh, you can't beat, in an Irish sense, you can't beat a Declan O'Rourke concert. It is just so full of passion and skill and the songwriting and the delivery is brilliant. But you, in particular, are going to... Uh, Elton John tomorrow night. Thank you very much, Con, for uh, taking part. You've won our final set of tickets. Thanks very much, Mick. Thanks All the best. So much. Thanks. Thanks. Cheers. Bye bye. Now, the legendary Elton John playing Parky Kiev, of course, uh, tomorrow night. And that brings me very nicely to an email uh, which we got from Ken Cash, who's a, a Cork taxi driver. Hi, Mick. After reading the Garda traffic management plan in detail for the upcoming Elton John concert, I'd suggest this to your listeners. If you're getting a taxi to the venue, be aware that the designated taxi drop-off zones are by Goldberg's Pub on Victoria Road. That's approximately two kilometres from the venue. Or by Parky Rin on the Boring Manor Road, also approximately two kilometres from the venue. Though I would venture Parky Rin is closer uh, than Goldberg's. I stand to be corrected on that. Now, taxis are not allowed to use Centre Park Road or the Monaghan Road to drop off customers. I don't know why, but that's the case. Uh, except if they're wheelchair taxis and then only if their customer is a disabled concert ticket holder. Now, Bus Aaron will provide a shuttle bus service with a five-minute frequency from 3pm to 8pm each day from Connolly Hall and Laps Quay, just beside Parnell Place, where the park and ride usually is. This shuttle service, which I recommend, he's recommending uh, the bus shuttle service, and he's a taxi driver, uh, this shuttle service would bring passengers along Centre Park Road and drop them off where the marquee is held every year and only about 100 metres from the venue. Getting home is another story. Let's look at that. Many of the 202 buses will run from beside the venue bar on the Black Rock Road into town. If and when the guardie and the bus and inspector reckon the crowds have sufficiently cleared the Black Rock Road to allow the buses to run safely. Now, this may take a long time. The shuttle bus does not run a return leg. Uh, the nearest taxi rank will be on Albert Road. Once again, that's approximately two kilometres away, so you'll have a bit of walking to do. But keep in mind, there's about 40,000 people at the concert and only about 500 taxis working the city. Uh, wear flat shoes as well, says Ken, because you'll be walking the three kilometres back into town. Thank you for that, Ken Cash. Uh, same plans this Friday for Elton John as the Ed Sheeran concerts this year and four years ago. But just to note the salient points from this email, taxis will not be allowed to use Centre Park Road or Monaghan Road. They'll have to drop you by Goldberg's Pub on Victoria Road or um, Parky Rin on the Boreen Manor Road. So the uh, the real silver bullet here is if there's a five-minute frequency, the 202 bus will run every five minutes uh, and it will run from the uh, where the park and ride usually is at Connolly Hall, the brown glass building on Laps Quay. That seems to be the best option because it'll drop you about 100 metres from the venue. Good luck if you're going to Elton John tomorrow night. Back to our phone lines and Veronica. Hi, Veronica. Hi, Mick. How are you? Good. Now, we just spoke about wheelchairs and taxis. Your daughter is a part-time user of a wheelchair. Tell me all about her. Okay. So, she's 24 years of age, um, a qualified veterinary nurse. 
and she was in Budapest a year and a half ago studying to be a vet and suddenly got sick. So when she booked the tickets originally, she obviously was in full health and she's back in Cork now and part-time wheelchair user. So to go to a concert and stand on the pitch for the full night, she wouldn't be able to do it. Um, and she went down to um, two of the concerts in Musgrave Park, picture this, which I was with her, and the second one was Ruth Capandri last Friday night. That was, um, that was a wet one, was it? Oh, it was unreal. I stood waiting for her friend outside, and we were absolutely saturated, and that was five minutes. You wow. Know, so God help anybody who was there. She actually ended up with a chest infection. But anyway, so the staff were amazing we didn't obviously have disability books because she bought the tickets previously and they were so nice so helpful there was one guy actually wheeled her in um, and said look let me check if there's availability that was the first night we picture this um, there was a lovely girl on the stand um, she was amazing she gave us a seat and checked with us that we were fine showed us where the disability toilet was and she couldn't have been but none of them could have been any better no really but my issue is with the disability toilets so I don't know if you know Independent Park, but there's kind of a, a, a ladies and the gents beside each other and right beside those, there's a, a ramp going up onto the stand for wheelchair access. But halfway up the ramp, there's the dis- disability bathroom, okay, which is for people with disabilities of any type. Um, so that was grand. There was no issue until halfway through, she went to go to the toilet and the toilet was blocked. And what happened was the girl, Emma, who had been looked after me, had gone off somewhere else. And the other person at the end of the ramp had allowed the people in the queues for the regular bathrooms to start using the disability bathrooms. That's okay on a temporary basis, but when someone with a disability shows up, surely they have priority then? Yeah, they did. But what happened was they flooded the bathrooms. Ah. Both disability toilets were flooded on both nights. On two nights? On both nights, yeah. Overall, is there sufficient toilets there and capacity there, um, do you think? I, I don't know. Like, we were right on the stand right next to the disability toilet, so it wouldn't have been an issue. Um, but, as I say, when she went through it, there was um, a flood. It had been flooded, and it was constant. So the second night, which was she was actually more angry about, and that's why she contacted Musgrave Park, was... She wheeled herself up to the top, you know, where the shops are and the bars and you can get onto the pitch for um, the merchandise. She went to the toilet and there was a queue. There was a queue a mile long, she said, for the disability toilet. But they were all able-bodied people. Well, we assumed they were able-bodied. And there was a little boy about nine or ten years of age who was Down syndrome. And he was crying with pain in the queue, waiting to go to the toilet. He said, Mammy, please, you said there will only be one more minute. And nobody in front of him let him into the toilet. Oh, that's terrible. She was very, very upset. So because she was in the wheelchair, they called her forward to the top of the queue. And she said to the mother, look, let him go in front of me. His need is more important than mine. And the mother, she nearly cried. She nearly hugged her. She was so grateful. And Uh, and did that meet with any objection from the people who weren't moving in the first place? Oh, the the girl who was first in the queue before Ashton went up in her wheelchair was uh, like thunder. They really? didn't say anything. Yeah. Oh, their faces like thunder. Yeah. So I just think maybe, you know, um, they should kind of make sure that the disability toilets are for people with a disability. I mean, some disabilities are not visible. Everybody understands that. My own grandnephew was there um, 
for Dermot Kennedy the other night. He's he's six and he is down, uh, he's uh, on the on the spectrum. He had his lanyard, and as soon as my niece arrived at the stadium, again, first class treatment, unbelievable. So it's not it's not that the staff haven't been trained to look after people with disabilities, visible or non visible. It's the fact that the toilets were being used by people who really shouldn't be using them, and they blocked them up. Okay, now if if you saw some able-bodied person parking in a disabled space, everyone is very vocal about that, um, and, and you know. You, you have to draw a comparison because when when a, a person with a disability wants to use the toilet, then they should be able to access it at least. Well, I tell you now, I was outside in Duns in Bishopstown oh, about six or eight weeks ago, and again, no, she was in the wheelchair. Like, she can walk, and like you could see her walking around town, and you're saying, what the hell is her mother on about? But it's just that she could go down... Um, just looking at her and she could go down in front and hit her head on the ground. So we can take a chance if there's any length of time or you're going to be walking around for a while. Okay, so well, what, what happened to her in, in Budapest well, at, we, at her we, age? Um, it's a genetic condition. It, she has a thing called an EDS. And she has, has POTS. Um, she had to get a heart monitor uh, loop recorder fitted and she's also having seizures but they're non-epileptic non, um, as far as we can make out. So it's still all kind of up in the air, you know. So she's a lot going on. Okay, so brilliant, brilliant treatment from the well-trained staff in Musgrave Park. Absolutely. It's just that the yeah. disabled toilets could have done with maybe a little better policing, maybe. But it's, it's not just in Musgrave Park. It's everywhere. As I say, about eight weeks ago, we went down to Bishopstown and we went up to the toilet and there was somebody in the disability one. So we kind of waited about 20 minutes and knocked on the door, blah, blah, blah. And eventually, after 40 minutes, somebody came out. And it was actually a member of staff, not Dunn's staff, one of the um, franchises in Dunn's. And she said to me, oh, I was sick, but I said, there's toilets next door. Do you see the wheelchair sign? Have you a disability? You're not in the wheelchair. Um, no, I haven't. Don't deny me. She pushed past me. Well, don't and deny me and push past me. My God. Yeah, and pushed past me. And I spoke to two of the managers, a lady and a gent. And they went off and checked CCTV, and she had been in there for an hour. Wow. An hour? Yeah, an hour. And did you make a complaint? Please don't mention any names now. Oh, I've no names. I didn't ask any names. I know what what franchise, but I'm not going to mention that either. Okay. I spoke to the man, and he said um, they're actually doing a building out there now. So they will be reorganising. And they yeah, there's big renovations going on in Duns and Bishopstown. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, disabled parking spaces are for people with disabilities, as are disabled toilets. A little more attention, a yeah. little more care, uh, and a little more compassion for those with disabilities is needed. Absolutely. Uh, but well done yeah. at the same time to, to the very well-trained uh, staff oh, at Musgrave brilliant. Park on the, on the other hand. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thanks, Veronica. Okay, good luck, Mike. Cheers, thanks. Uh, final calls to the programme now, 0818 or by text 086-8104-106. That's by SMS or WhatsApp. The Neil Prendival Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday, 0818-104-106. And it's always nice to come back to a story, and uh, this story I handled the last time that Neil was away for a few days, and it involved Brendan Piper and the Piper's Caravan uh, which we believe will return to Kinsale. Good morning, Brandon. Good morning, Mick. How are you? I'm good. This has been quite the saga, hasn't it? Because you were... Uh, did, did, did you take it away for repairs and then you were told it couldn't come back? Let's start at the well, start it, here. You no, know, but it was... It, I took it away because I was told to take away with the council first day. 
And this is um, the historic Piper's is, Wagon. The yeah, it was a it was a condition that when I when we applied for the the fund for the town park in Kinsale, and what we did we applied for that, and then they came back there, and the council came back with two conditions. One was the um, there'd be an extra two thousand under the rent of the of the town park, and the showman's wagon has been moved permanently from. Shark King can see what was built in 1932. Okay, now that was there right. from the bones of 100 years, wasn't it? Exactly. My grandfather, my grandfather built it at the 18th, and that was his father at the time. The old show was done by steam engine across. He used to travel all West Cork, and he used to travel down in the way back. He used to cover in the 20s the King Seal Regatta, which we still do to this day in August. And my grandfather fell in love with King Seal and he settled in King Seal and that's where he built his showman's wagon in Sharkey and he started his own fun fair beside it. He didn't bring any rides from his own from his father's show. He started his own show in Sharkey beside the wagon. Yeah. And that was in nineteen thirty two. Okay, and it's it's been there ever since. Now of course it's been taken away for repairs now and again. Uh, but it was quite the photo spot, the photo opportunity was there. And if you don't know where Short Key is, uh, on one side you've got Jim Edwards, on the other side you've got the back of the Lord King Sale and Oscar Madison's and that. Correct. Yep. That's yeah. And like people have said over the last two years, like people said, when you go to King Sale you have you to prove that you're in King Sale, you have to take a photograph beside the showman's wagon. They say it's like Guy Fatar in Paris. <laughs> I believe it not. That's, uh, and it, it was very popular over the years. Now, uh, let's let's get to current developments. There was some mm. resistance to it coming back from uh, from local councillors, and you got some support as well. Some support, support was overwhelming, Mick. Only for the people of King Sale and Father Field. And I mean, when I see Father Field, it's international as well. And this was all due to your good sales and college in the media and the local people of King's Seal. It's just been un- un- unbelievable. We're so overwhelmed. I said, we didn't expect. Like when the showman's wife was taken away, I thought that we only um, on Facebook there might be, uh, uh, you know, a couple of people just said it's a pity that it's gone and all that. But then we have Sean Donovan put it up and Councillor Sean Donovan. He rang me and he wanted to know why what's happened to Shaman's wagon because Billy's wagon, my dad's, because it was singling down the pier on a low loader, the truck. That's right. That was and, we, we had a picture of that in our social media actually. Yeah, and I, I told him I said it's a situation. He said, Why didn't you tell him? we didn't know but I thought the council voted this, no we knew nothing. He put it on his Facebook and Sean took it from there. Yeah, but it's coming back and, in twenty twenty three, but you can't go back to short key, but you've taken a bit of a compromise in that you can go to what's the car park. You can go to the site of the fun fair uh, with the same yep. original uh, rent that you paid. Now, is that written in stone or is that something that can be reneged on in time? Well, this is the, this is what I've been, we've been, we've been talking about because Councillor um, John O'Sullivan rang me yesterday and filled me in to confirm everything that the, the local council management have suggested. And yes, they suggest they're going to come back to me in two weeks' time, within the two weeks' time, and they're going to give me it in stone, they're going to give me it in writing. What's going to be exactly in writing, I don't know. Okay. What we're talking uh, here is just hearsay, you know, until we get it in writing, we don't know what. I know. What the, con- what the con- real conditions are. But Brendan, you, you have a groundswell of popular support, you have, uh, you know, you have facilities in the media now to highlight the situation, uh, and you have uh, a lot of support in Kinsale as well for people to have this iconic 
moving structure. It's a structure, but it's a moving structure. But it's part of the fabric of Kinsale. It's coming back next year. It's going to be in the uh, the funfair spot, which is the car park. Now, it won't be, sadly, back in short key. It's a compromise I'm sure you're happy to to take. You'll wait to get it in writing. Yeah. Uh, and we wish you all the very best. Thanks, Brendan. Well, Mick, at the end of the day, Mick, this is not about the council winning. It's not about Piper family, myself and dad winning. This is about sitting down with a compromise and what you can accomplish when you sit down and talk to one another, not at one another. Exactly. Every side can be a winner. Thank you, Brendan. Yeah. God bless. Thanks. Thank God bless. All the best. Good morning. Now, the programme was produced today by Kevin Galvin, by Seamus Whelan, and by Claire O'Connor. My uh, thanks to all three. And it's our very good friends, Lisa and James O'Brien's 30th birthday today. And that is love from all of your friends in Monkstown. They're known uh, far and wide. Uh, the twins, Lisa and James O'Brien, 30 years of age today. The celebrations will be mighty, I'm sure. We've got news at midday on the way, and I'll talk to you tomorrow morning after News at 9 on the Neil Prendeville Show. Neil Prendeville, the voice of Cork. Weekdays 9 to 12. Cork's Red FM.